Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and <laughs> welcome to another episode of Romeo and Dan's High School Reunion podcast brought to you by PV Electronics. We love you, PV. Thank you so much. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, the amazing, the talented Neville Page. Welcome, Neville. Welcome, Neville. How you doing, buddy? It's been a while. I haven't seen you for a while. You've just made it awkward. You're yeah. complimentary. <laughs> uh, it has been a while. It's you have a lot to, to live up to now. Yeah, I do. How I'm do you guys know each other, life. first off? Um, through mutual friends, wasn't it? Like Spartacus. Through Spartacus, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, that tiny little show. That, that tiny little, little show. show that did okay for stars. I <laughs> I went to a screening of Spartacus, one of the uh, finales up mm. at um, God, I forget where it was, but I met TJ. In fact, I saw TJ's pants first. Yeah, TJ Scott. He does have a good pair of pants. He does, and um, he only wears one pair. He does. That's all he wears. <laughs> but it's changing over time. <laughs> Color even. Uh, but no, I uh, met TJ and we struck it off and kind of became friends rather quickly. And then from that, you are brought into the uh, Spartacus family. Once yeah. you're introduced to the various Spartans, yes, um, you fall in love with them as well. So, Well, Dan, I've only met you. Thank you for all your other introductions. You're more than welcome. <laughs> He is all that you know. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. all that I know. All that I know. That all sort of stuff. Yeah. He's well, embarrassed by me. No, don't be silly. Don't be silly. Or That's... they're really not his friends. No. <laughs> Neville's my only friend. It's like buying Instagram friends or something. Yeah, absolutely. I get a lot of likes. Yeah. I get a lot of likes. <laughs> um, Neville, so, uh, you know, w- what would we call you? What's your kind of profession? Like, what's what's your... What do people know you as? Um, the the profession is called illustrator, mm-hmm. which is such an incorrect term for what we do. Um, in terms, I shouldn't say the profession is that. It, it's named that within the union. So when I'm hired for a job, they're looking for illustrators. But to me, throughout the years of um, looking at other artists, an illustrator is somebody with a canvas and a paintbrush, you know, the cliche version of it. Sketch pad. Yeah. But what I am is, and what people like myself are, are called concept designers. Mm. And then you start narrowing that down into what you've been doing mostly recently, and it would be probably creature designer. Yeah. But I, my like background Avatar, is... Avatar, Star Trek, I mean, the list goes on. I've been... No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Avatar, Star Trek, that's it. Uh, no, I've been very fortunate. It's, it's been a good run and I'm still being employed, so I count my blessings and... You know, it's a it's a business where there's a lot of very very talented people, yeah. um, and more every day, which is great. Really, I love the community of art. I've been a teacher for about twenty years, so I'm not. Uh, it's not uh, to my chagrin that so many good people are out there. It's actually something I love, and um, in some ways, I've been a part of that by being a teacher. I think it's so critical that what we do as artists is obviously give back. Philanthropy is a is a very important part, should be a very important part of what artists do. And um, I would imagine this podcast is for you guys a, a similar thing. It's, it's giving back to the community and making people aware of what it is that we do. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And Dan and I also teach as well. We teach acting and, yeah, and coaching, coaching and self-taping, all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, take us back to, because uh, I remember you told me the story when you first came over here. You actually weren't wanting to be in your now current profession. Is that correct? When I first came over here, yeah. like to the States when yeah, I was yeah, five, yeah. 
Yes. I, <laughs> well, I mean, I had a very clear Born vision. Born in England, yes. right? Then you moved to Chicago, Illinois, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And then at 17, you came here to be an actor. Yeah. Well, and you know more than me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll look to you now. <laughs> Turn my gaze to you. Yes. Um, well, yeah, at around 17, well, let me go back a, uh, a couple steps further. My mom uh, and father, how they met was um, in the theater. My mother was a dancer, a professional dancer. That's what she did and wanted to do. My father was a professional drummer. And so because of that, he was in the pit and she was on stage. They met um, during a production in London. And I say that because that born into that world, you're exposed to quite a range of people and quite a range of talents. And it's a very colorful world, the theater, as you know. Mm -hmm. And, And that was normal for, for myself and my sister. And my, at the time, Around that time uh, in the UK, they were in a circus, Billy Smart's circus. And my dad was a drummer and we had a small caravan out back. And um, <laughs> and I wasn't raised in circus, but uh, in a peripheral way, that was something that I experienced. And again, because of those things, those that, that ambient exposure, you either by genetics or by exposure, you gravitate towards those things. And I I felt very comfortable in the arts in general. So I always wanted to be an actor. I always liked the idea of performing. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not like it was something my parents encouraged on a daily basis. Yeah. And it was a strange thing. Around 17, it was the point in my life where I had to make a choice of, you know, where am I going to go to school, college? And uh, I was painfully pragmatic for that age. And I thought to myself, well, if I go to an art school to become an illustrator, that time a a real illustrator, I would be spending four years or so and it would cost a fortune. I was hoping to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. And I thought, well, if I I go and study acting, uh, there was a school called, or is a school called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, Pasadena. Um, that's going to be a significantly smaller investment and I will learn fairly quickly if that's going to yield what I want to have my life be. I thought it makes sense then to try the act, which I still find crazy that I actually broke it down pragmatically, (laughs) you know, spreadsheet and numbers because that's not my style at all. Mm. So from that assessment, I auditioned for the school in Chicago. They had somebody there that would audition people in the Midwest and uh, moved out to California for the dream. And uh, I began to live that dream by working at various restaurants <laughs> <laughs> right away. Yep. Yep. And going on getting an agent that just didn't represent me well at all. Um, <laughs> know nothing about that. That never mm. happens. Yeah. I, I, it never happens. But you know, we're really unlucky. I was very, yeah. <laughs> That's right. The stakes were against me. It was bizarre. But, you know, the, the coolest thing, though, um, that I must bring up was when I was in Chicago around that age, around um, 17, I was working at the Weston Hotel, excuse me, Weston Hotel O'Hare in um, Chicago by the Rosemont. And they just built this hotel 
So I was put in the front desk and they gave me a lot of responsibility because I had nothing to lose at the time. They hardly had any guess. <laughs> but one of their biggest um, clients at that time was a, um, a movie production. And they said, hey, Neville, you like to act. You want to be an actor, right? I was like, mm, yeah, sure. He said, why don't you take care of these guys? Why don't you be their point person? for all of the things that they need. The production's coming in, the producers will be here, and then some of the crew is going to be starting to build out uh, some school nearby. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Happy to do it. So I met the producers, met the director. And um, for me, it, it was initially kind of one of those things where it's like, oh my God, these are real live directors from Hollywood and real live producers, and they're making a movie. Do I tell them now that uh, they should know me? Do I do I warn them of my presence? I thought, no, you just can't do that. And it was a smart thing to not say to them, oh, I want to be an actor someday. Mm. Here's my number. I kept it a secret, a dirty secret. And in fact, they never knew until uh, actually only recently, which is the entire... Um, full weekend, circle. Yeah, full yeah. circle of the story. So the director was John Hughes. Oh. And it was The Breakfast Club. <gasps> yeah. No. So, and, and at the time... You know, John Hughes, you kind of know of him from having done some stuff. Yeah. And the the cast back then is just a bunch of kids. A bunch of kids. That, yeah, that you oh, don't wow. really know. And I knew of one, which was Emilio Estevez. Mm -hmm. And, um, but at the same time, it was kind of cool. Like, and most of them, because of their age, had parents, had their guardians with them. How old were they at the time? Were they, they well, under 18? 17? Uh, Michael 16? Anthony Hall might have been... 16 or under 16. Um, Molly Ringwald, I'm not sure. Maybe around 16. Judd Nelson, probably, you know, the eldest of them. Yeah. Guessing. Was 30. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he was always 30. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, what, ha what happened one day was uh, one of the producers, Michelle Manning, she, um, her camera went missing from her room. So um, she came down and said, you know, can you help me in, in short? And so I dealt with it and got it resolved fairly quickly. And I was always there for them. And you never know and you cannot predict the consequences of your actions. You can only be genuine. I, I think one should only be genuine and you should do yes. genuine things and, and be kind if that's how you're built. And from that, some stuff may happen down the road. So to make a very long convoluted story very short, um, Michelle Manning, the producer, and the set decorator, Jennifer Polito, who I've lost touch with, um, and the set designer, Bill Corso. These are three amazing people to me. The actors were cool, and the director and other people, they were all very, very cool. But these guys were just like, they were the artists behind it. And I thought, God, I'm kind of intrigued about the other side of the camera. So Michelle said, if you ever come to California, look me up. I thought, turns out... I'm going to move out to California. I don't think I told him my reasons why. Mm -hmm. So after driving a car across country, some giant rusty Buick that just limped <laughs> across the <laughs> California border, um, uh, the first thing I did was contact her thinking, you know, I've got to kind of keep that relationship alive. And she said, timing's perfect. Um, there's going to be a cast and crew of Breakfast Club. Would you like to come? It's like, oh my. God at Universal Studios. So I, my vehicle at the time, because I had zero money, just enough to pay that first month rent. Yeah. And um, I had a, a restaurant job, which was going to cover my, my habits. And 
I bought a 50cc scooter. So if you can imagine, I'm 6'4". A 50cc scooter <laughs> is tiny. You know, it's a single stroke, putt-putt kind of thing. And I had my one suit um, that I graduated high school. Did you have big school. goggles as well? Oh, no, no. Back in those days, you don't wear a helmet or goggles. You just, <laughs> you just squint. I was just imagining this like tall person on a tiny little scooter with the big goggles. and like, hey. <laughs> it was funny in a different way. Yeah. Um, but that scooter got me all the way to Universal. Of course, I parked it behind a bush so nobody knew. And um, <laughs> the person that greeted me was Emilio Estevez, oh. which was cool. And he, he knew me well enough at the time to um, recognize me and say, hey, come on out. Why don't you do some of my girlfriend? And the girlfriend was like, hi. I was like, oh, what's your name? Demi Moore. I was like, oh, okay. oh my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, seems like a nice gal. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's like these are people I don't know who they are necessarily and what they will become. Yeah. Um, but the the coolest thing about the whole thing was being introduced to Emilio's family. And Martin Sheen um, was incredibly gracious and uh, engaging and curious. And um, and that was I – I, I knew who Martin Sheen was, that's mm, for sure. Yeah. So sitting at this table with them, um, you know, pre-movie and thinking – this is incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm sitting with Martin Sheen. I'm at Universal Studios. I arrived about a month ago. Was Charlie there? Charlie was there. Ah, he was there. Um, and I thought to myself, this is it. My career is on. Here I go. <laughs> this is all that needed. This is the break, quote unquote, that I, I needed. Yeah. And from there, I immediately got nothing. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the process as well. You yeah. learn about yes. uh, you know how it really does work but it, it it's and that's pretty much how it works it for is. everyone yeah, yeah. It, there's and it, it's taken a while to um figure that out but cut to years later many years later i'm talking with my manager about um, some project and he said well i'm going to be meeting a friend of mine for lunch later today so let's pick this up later uh, and the person he was meeting was Michelle Manning. I was like, oh, you, oh my God, I haven't heard that name in so long. You're friends with her? Oh, yeah, yeah, we go way back. I was like, that's so cool. Tell her I said hi. So from that, um, Michelle and I have uh, been in development on projects in the hopes that something someday may get picked up. There was that beat where I thought, I'm going to meet Michelle Manning again, and this is going to be the start of my career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's going to happen. Yeah. So and it, and it doesn't work that way, but it's just so cool how you know the, the the circle of life and how things just reconnect down the road. And you know, if I was if I was awful to the Breakfast Club at the front office hotel, you know, yeah. it, it wouldn't have worked out that way. Yeah. Oh, and sitting here with you. Uh, and you were the one that took Michelle Manning's camera, right? And hit it, and then like, <laughs> oh, I found it. There's a way to provoke, <laughs> provoke good fortune. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's very Vico Morton, um, Mortensen, Morkinson, Mortensen, Mortensen, Mortensen. Mortensen. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew how to pronounce his name. In Green Book, where he steals the guy's hat. Yeah, I haven't actually seen, seen it yet. So. Thanks. Spoiler alert. You Didn't haven't know. seen it? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, that's pretty much how it happened. Okay. Oh, there you go. So, through that, how did you get into like your current kind of profession, like? Because uh, it's pretty badass and epic what you've done. Well, and it it again is it's it's fortune. It's good fortune. Yeah. Is you but gotta, you have to have some talent to be able to do that. Though. You do. You yeah. absolutely do. Like have how did to you have, fall, how did you go from actor to also you know what? And you already it, it had piqued your interest the other side of the camera, but then to go from that into 
illustrator at the time? Mm-hmm. It it came from already being on the other side of the camera, watching, um, seeing, being behind the scenes of theater with what my parents had done, uh, being behind the scenes of being in the theater. I really, I liked building sets for our productions in high school. Uh, okay. Uh, I was the kid who didn't show up to events because I was working on the float, you know, and, and <laughs> making a stage piece. And I was happy with that. Yeah. But the, um, the, the impetus for kind of everything was when I w- was despondent about the fact that acting was not in my control. I was not able to um, engage in the craft easily. You know, we can all pick up a script, pick up a, a book, uh, a monologue, and and read it at home and and perform it. But it just wasn't what I was wanting to do. I wanted to be amongst others doing the craft, and I had no control. I didn't think at the time, at least, I had no control over that. Whereas as an artist, you can actually sit at home, generate a piece of art, sell it. Uh, yeah. So I thought, you know what? I just, I just don't know if I could, and if I, I want to make this a career that would generate money. I don't know if I can do that. And I felt again this this wave of pragmatism, thinking what I choose to do next must yield income, not so I can own things, but just so I can sustain life and, and be alive yeah. and be alive. Yeah. Um, so I remember having heard about a college nearby, I was living in Pasadena and there was a college up the hill called the art center college of design. And, um, my mom had actually sent me a newspaper article about it a while back. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get an education in the arts, illustrator, whatever. And so I hung up the phone, excuse me, I called my mom. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to that school you mentioned. I'm going to go up there, see what it's about. And then hope for the best. I'll need a student loan and all those things. We were not wealthy. So um, I hung up the phone with my mom, probably three paces from stepping away, thinking, I'm on my way now. The phone rang. I went back and picked it up and said, hi, is this Neville Page? Yes, it is. This is Skitch Hendricks from General Hospital. And um, we're interested in you in a role. Like, I'm in. <laughs> to hell with art. I'm going to, this is it. This, this is, is the it. moment. This is the one. Yeah. And it was a recurring role mm-hmm. on General Hospital. Um, I was to start off in the pizza parlor and kind of be an ear of um, all the activities going on with the, the gangs that were happening at the time and Frisco and Felicia. And I thought, this is incredible. I remember being on set and being put in costume and makeup and thinking, this is really, I just, I just, I was born to be an actor. And then they, they, <laughs> that was it. That was the one day and they cut the the role and they, you know, Aww. wrote it out and moved on to something else. And I thought, right, art center, here I come. I'm going to visit the school. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. I was just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I, it was actually a galvanizing moment of, see, again, I thought, uh, I was mistaken. And, and part of that is your own expectation management of, you know, mm. now as professional actors yourself, you know that when you're, you even get a role, that doesn't mean that this is it, you know, mm. at least that Lamborghini. Yeah. I so, mean, maybe, maybe it was like the universe telling you just, are you sure this is what you want to do? No. And then you move on to. Or, or the universe is crueler and said, here's a taste of what you're not going to do. <laughs> <laughs> evil, evil universe. So I went to the art center looked at the school, was blown away by what it was. And I chose to get on a path that I didn't even know existed, which was 
industrial design, mm. specifically product design. So industrial design is the kind of umbrella mm. category for automotive, environmental, and product design. And product appealed to me. So I did that. That's graduated. very lucrative. That's a very lucrative career. Design. Oh, yeah, it can be very much so. Um, so when I graduated, and I, I, I don't, shouldn't go into the details of it all, but basically my roommate slash, hey, let's start a business together, business partner, Scott Robertson. He and I thought, let's not do the traditional route, which is you start interviewing with companies, you take your portfolio and you try and get a job in-house. Let's combine our portfolios into one thing and call it a business and start selling our services as a consultancy, which is insane that's, to that's do. That's good. It's, I mean, it's now. very clever. Yeah. Well, it's clever in that if you you take note of the fact that we had nothing to lose, no money, no relationships, no assets, there was nothing. So it makes falling um, a, softer? A, a softer thing. Yeah, it does, yeah. truly. And that's a smart thing. Once you've accrued the responsibilities of family and, and um, yeah, your mortgages, et cetera, you're not that nimble to move anymore. So we thought, let's try this. And we we moved up to San Francisco because he had done an internship up there as well as I have. So we kind of had a solid client base of two people. And um, we gave it a go and did did well enough to um, have clients for several years and do a whole variety of projects, which interestingly enough, again, you don't realize that what you're doing now could potentially have a huge impact um, on you years later, um, specifically with James Cameron on Avatar. So we were designing medical products. That was kind of what where we sort of landed. That became kind of our thing. Um, products for the disabled, um, ambulatory aids, um, beds, uh, hospital beds. Danny, listening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in touch. I'm taking notes. Um, yeah, just lots of that stuff, um, oxygen therapy. And it was profoundly satisfying from a design standpoint because you, the products you're creating are genuinely affecting and helping people. Uh, versus I've done toys as well, which is a wonderful thing. But if you've seen kids or ever been a kid, you realize that those are fleeting and yeah, <laughs> throw them away. <laughs> I designed one toy and this is when I realized I don't think I want to be doing toys anymore. I was in Target or Walmart years ago and my toys were in the bargain bin. Oh, that's okay. You know, <laughs> it's because they were, um, uh, last yeah, years. They were last years. Yeah. <laughs> and they suck. <laughs> but it was an action figure that you had to have. And this little boy was saying to his mom, oh, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? And I was just like, God, oh, this is the coolest thing to be witness to yeah. is this little kid who just had to have it. And the mom's response was, we don't need any more of that shit. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I should probably become an actor. <laughs> <laughs> General Hospital. <laughs> Can you rewrite that role? Yeah, I, I'm more than happy to be in the pizza place. Yeah, I'd yeah. probably be there for today. I'll buy it for you. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. I'll steal it for you. I do that with people's cameras. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was it was this incredible experience to design these products for the disabled in particular. Listeners, excuse the noise. There's someone. What is it? 
blowing yeah. leaves outside. So yeah, nature nature can't blow the leaves for us. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, I mean, the wind maybe, but yeah, I know it can. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like my scooter actually. <laughs> the one that you drove yeah. to. But the one I drove here. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not been good. It's been a rough year. <laughs> but now you have a helmet and the goggles. I do. Yeah, I've upgraded. Um, <laughs> So medical, medical, medical products, equipment. Yeah, we, we were, were doing well in that arena. and um, But an opportunity came up to, I'm just blabbing on about my life. Is that what that's, I'm supposed to do? Yeah, absolutely. No, okay. we'll, 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 like, we'll, we'll, you know, yeah, finesse steer, it into certain areas. Steer me where you want me to go. Yeah. Um, Scott and I got an opportunity to teach in Switzerland, something we've never done before. Oh, we both. Be in Switzerland and teach. Oh, that sounds like it sucks. Yeah, and oh, not just Switzerland, but a place <laughs> called Montreux, where the jazz festival is. It's, oh, even it's worse. Called the Swiss Riviera. It's where you know the <clears throat> oldest money of Switzerland, yeah, slash Europe would be. I'm told. Um, yeah, we thought what a great opportunity because the medical stuff is phasing out. We're looking for the next thing to do. This is perfect timing. So we went there. And did it for about a year and a half until the school went out of business. But the the reason I bring that up is because um, my love for um, teaching was was born at that point. And I thought this is an incredible thing to to teach because not only is it great to give back, but it's when you truly learn. Do you want me to stop and give that a moment? Is that your preference? I, yeah, we can give it a moment. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. Commercial break. Commercial break right now, guys. And we are back from the commercial break. Uh, Neville, what were we talking about? Me? Yes, we were. Well, you were talking about yourself. Medical. That's what you were doing. <laughs> That's what you were talking medical about. Medical design. Yeah, medical design. You went to Switzerland. That's right. And Taught teaching. Teaching. Good. Yes. That's where teaching. We were. Yes. Um, you learn so much by teaching more than yes, I think you teach. Absolutely. But, and it also keeps you honest. And that was one of the greatest things. Not that I was a liar before with except for the camera, except for the camera. That's different. <laughs> that was, that was more strategic. Yes. It's very smart of you. And you gave it back. I did. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't stealing. I was actually, just it was borrowing a, it. It was a different camera I gave back. Which yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the honesty part of it is when a student asks you a question, you know, wh why does a sphere cast a shadow? Uh, and you all of a sudden realize oh, that's such a simple question. Why is the sky blue? I don't know the answer. I have to be the one that has the answer. So you can lie in the moment, which unfortunately I've experienced a lot of teachers doing as a student, as also a teacher. And you see like with perspective class teachers, teaching the wrong thing. It's so yeah. irritating. And I always felt like, and it's an obvious responsibility that the student gets what they paid for. And um, because of that, and because of my own interest in learning, um, I studied so hard those two years I was in Switzerland. And I, I really wanted to know exactly why things were the way they were. So why does a sphere cast a shadow? Light. I was going to say. Is that it? <laughs> the the um, <laughs> tangent edge of the rays of light uh, occlude the light from passing. Oh, very, very nice. And the reason it's not a black shadow is because of the ambient bounce light from various objects. It's a complex thing. That but sounds very complex. I'm very. Gonna, I'm going to show you something. It sounds so very complex. On. Okay. Keep, keep on talking. Okay. Um, I found okay. It. So, I oh, found oh it. wait. Rami's about to. I want to show because Rami's about to show something. Shadows yeah. and light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I drew this from a portrait I found of a, of a baby. 
or a toddler upside down. Nice. The toddler was upside down or you were? The I was. was. No, no. Uh, the, the, to- the picture of the toddler was upside down. Good. And That's a good way to go. All I did was capture oh, wow. the shadows yeah. and the yeah. light. I didn't look and I just tried to. And then when I turned around, that's what I came up with. Plus being upside down, you're not, you're not pre, predisposed. I used the word before, but you're not predisposed to what that shape should be. Yeah. Oh, I'm drawing a nose now because when it's upside down, it's something that we do actually teach in classes. Ah. When you're looking at something, you're going to copy something, turn it upside down to not understand or have a premeditated expectation of the shape. And you're just dealing with, in your case, value, which is, is yeah. really good. Does that mean you don't, you don't, uh, you, you focus more because you have, because it's, you're flipping the image and so something that you're not used to seeing. So therefore your brain has to go, okay, we need to focus a lot more on this. Sort of the opposite. You're focused on a different thing. Yeah. You're not focused on a nose or an eye as much as you're yeah. focused on. No, but that, 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 that's what I mean. Like, in, like, yes. Yeah, I like see what you're it's, saying. um, so your brain's like, okay, this is something different. We mm-hmm. need to focus even more on, you know, this right. kind of thing. Um, that's really interesting. Well done, Romy. That was cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so I dabbled a bit. Good. As well. And as, I, as we all should in all the arts. It's because they're all it's, it's a lot of crossover that I want a um I want a, a, a class competition for drawing back in grade five. No, yes, grade five. But I cheated. <laughs> oh. wait, wait. I traced it. You... Uh, it happens. It happens. <laughs> I was in grade five. Leave me alone. It was a um a seahorse. Oh. <laughs> and they never found out? No, now they do. But now they do. Now they know. <laughs> it was like it was a great fun. Like the, I don't know what I've won, but I just remember like kind of like tracing it and all that sort of stuff. And they're like, wow, that's really good. And I'm like, thanks. Do you yeah. know what's interesting is that I would never, when he said I cheated, I was like, how can you cheat on that? Because it would never occur to me to ever trace something. Yeah. What? You're a good person. <laughs> no. <laughs> Genuine and honest. Yeah. No, no. I just never, I just never, I've, I've definitely tried to plagiarize things at times. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> but, I like you. That was when I was in, you know, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. No, absolutely. I loved Edgar Allan Poe and I wrote something and. Yes. It, I wrote the Raven. Raven. Right. It, it of, was the fall like of the Ellen house. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the fall of the house of Usher, and I just took enough that it was very similar, but I tr- thought it was my own. And the teacher was like, "Oh, it's very Edgar Allan Poe. Do it over." Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, very, fine. very Edgar Allan Poe. I, I got, and she goes, "This is called plagiarizing," and I was like, "Oh," but I didn't know it was wrong or illegal. Yeah. I just thought if you like something, you anyway. well, you you stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say. Yes. <laughs> While they're face down in the dirt. <laughs> I'm inspired by you. You're standing on top of them. <laughs> You're looking at the corpse. Absolutely. So from teaching, you... Uh, Wait, how did this lead into Avatar? That's where... Well, your first you thing, was your first thing Piranha? Medical? No. Oh, first I love Piranha. It and was you, you did fun. Tron Legacy as well, right? Yeah, yeah. worked on that. Mm-hmm. I've done a few um, things. I've done a few things, but the, the first One thing would <laughs> kind of be, it would be in the world of Rhythm and Hues when I was working for them. So before we uh, get to there, I moved back from Switzerland because the school shut down, unfortunately. Was Switzerland awesome there? It was incredible in every way. Yeah. Uh, and it's still aspirational in terms of lifestyle because it was the most balanced mm-hmm. I ever was in my life. Yeah. Now, like 20 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, but truly, you know, I got a taste of how 
well, I won't speak for all Europeans, of course, but how in that particular part of Europe and this particular time of life, the, the students, it was an international school. So we had German, Tanzanian, uh, Indian, um, Eastern Indian, we had everything, obviously the local French, Spanish. Um, and I remember distinctly, uh, Scott and I uh, were not comfortable at all when the students would say, hey, we're going out to such and such a pub to have a drink afterwards. Would like to join us? It's like, uh, thank you, but no, we're, we're teachers. We cannot do that. And one of and the- And you're only like three years older than them. <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, so- one of the administrators said to us, you know, the, the students, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is legitimately the vibe of what we said. The students are feeling a little weird about you two because you don't join them in going out for a drink. And I thought, but we shouldn't. Like, you should. That's what we do here. I mean, you, there are limits, but you yeah. hang out with your students. And it's okay. In fact, it's encouraged to have a drink with them. Yeah. I'm like, great. So, <laughs> yes, yes. Have a drink, do some blow. Yeah. Have sex with the underagers. Absolutely. So, that's how it's done in Europe. That's how it's done. <laughs> well, no, it's not everybody. No, it's not. <laughs> Cut Maybe. to, I don't know. Yeah. I find myself with this group of Finnish guys who their physiology is meant to consume alcohol in a different way than I was, but I stayed on course. Until I was like holding on to the blades of grass so I wouldn't slip off the earth. <laughs> you're, you're a big guy. It would take a, a lot, wouldn't it? It does take a lot. Yeah. And I take a lot. Yeah. And that was the problem. That's <laughs> consuming. Um, but we, I, I have such incredible memories. Uh, it was the, one of the greatest experiences. But the balance of life um, was that we worked hard and we not just played hard, but we just also paused and would go for a hike in the Alps and would, and it was amazing. I mean, yeah. that was a part of life is you put on your hiking boots, you go up to the top of wherever it was. We were right by some incredible, uh, the Roche de Ney, I think was one, uh, it was this amazing peak. You camp, you drank wine while you camped. It was like, this is how it should be. And I yearn for that mm. again. Um, when just a out of curiosity, I mean, I've been camping with a lot of Americans, but never with Europeans. Are they into s'mores and all that fun stuff too? I don't recall s'mores happening. They just walked around naked a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And jump into ice cold water. Yeah. Um, no weenies. I mean, that's a very American thing, hot dogs, right? But oh, like, uh, it's actually a, a, it's a very European thing. Really? Yeah. I think the weenie was born in Germany, maybe Vienna, or yeah. Vienna sausages. Um, yeah, weenies. Uh, yeah, they've got the whole. I think that they are the weenie kings. The weenie, the weenie kings. <laughs> the weenie, kings. <laughs> weenie kings of the world. Yes, <laughs> it's actually on their flag. <laughs> it probably is at the Olympics. Like, yay! Yeah. <laughs> the, <weenie kings. laughs> the flag with a little weenie on it, or just a large weenie. Yeah, yeah, and a large flag. weenie. Yeah. <laughs> Although not what I've heard, but just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. We won't go there. Um, yeah, so balance of life. And yeah, once again, how it all... So you, you came back. Yes. Yeah, I came back. I, was it no school choice. closed down. Yeah. And I came back to... Um, I was in San Francisco slash Santa Cruz with our business before moving to Switzerland. But we came back to LA because the school that was in Switzerland was the sister school of the Art Center College in Pasadena. So we had a job to come back to, which oh, was important. Good. Yeah. yeah. So I had a teaching <clears throat> gig. So Scott and I both did that. And we were then considering, well, beyond teaching... On occasion, what do we want to do now with our lives? 
and we thought consulting. And I thought, I'd kind of like to do something in the film industry, but that's not necessarily a choice that you just make and then do. Mm-hmm. So we, again, opened up um, a, an office in Culver City. And that, and Culver City, by the way, was not, was not what it is right now. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it, and the reason why we were there is because we could afford it because it wasn't what it is today. Uh, but what uh, an interesting experience that was because the whole next chapter came from a man named Phil Hedema, who was the head of, and I'm going to bastardize the name of his gig. He was the head of entertainment at Universal Studios, themed entertainment at Universal Studios. I apologize, Phil, if I got that wrong. Uh, Phil knew of Scott because he was teaching at the Art Center and said, hey, we're working on a new ride um, and it needs a vehicle that can accommodate people in wheelchairs. And we know that you guys, Neville, you're a product designer and Scott, you're a vehicle designer and the two of you work together. Mm. Would you like to um, help us design this vehicle. I thought, sure. So that turned into a huge job that was designing this vehicle for Men in Black, the ride in Florida. And because it was Men in Black and there were creatures, and I thought, man, I would love to design a creature. I was not a creature designer by any stretch of the imagination. I was just somebody who liked it. Mm. And they um, they were always amused by me saying, hey, can I design a creature? It's like, we kind of got that covered. Stay focused on your vehicle stuff. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but come on, just one. And I literally was about to beg, you know, for I, you don't even have to use it. Can I just draw it and show it to you and have you tell me I'm a fool? So they allowed me and uh, from that one or two drawings, I thought, yeah, we'll let you dabble. And it just kind of got bigger and bigger to the point where I got a large portion of doing all the creatures. When I say I, our company was called Studio X at the time, I think. (laughs) Well, we had Studio X when we started when we moved to San Francisco. I think at the time it was just Neville Page uh, and Scott were doing separate things. I forget. It's terrible. But they said, if you're going to do all this design work of these creatures, we'd like to have you um, have more people involved because it's way bigger than what you can handle. So they suggested I use one guy that they've used who worked on Men in Black, the film, a guy named Carlos Fuente. Mm. And I was like, I don't know who he is because I just moved to the States again. And I, I'm happy to have anyone you feel is the right fit. So Carlos then came and worked at our studio. And a uh, very nice guy. Um, talented is just not the word for him. He's beyond talented. And I, I saw him sharpen his pencil, open up just a plain piece of paper and a sketch pad and start drawing, not drawing. He was creating magic. And I was like, whoa, this, I guess, is what a creature designer really does. I guess I better get on it by some pencils and some paper. Because it was, um, it was quite shocking how good he was. And he still is that way. He's shockingly great. Did he also work for Disney? I don't think so. He may have consulted at some point on a project with them. Um, We all tend to be this band of gypsies. It goes from town to town, Mm. production to production. But we needed more people. And I asked Carlos if he knew anyone. He said, yeah, there's a guy named Jose Fernandez, who's um, a creature guy too. And Jose Fernandez came on board to help with creature work and creature sculpting. And then they said a guy named Jordan Shell, Jim Cagle, um, and... Brian Wade, I think those are the main designers that I'm recalling, um, who worked in my shop. And what was 
unbeknownst to me, so amazing was I didn't realize that these were top of the game, the Hollywood's best talent at the time working in entertainment were all under my roof. So my reference point for what was good uh, was, was the best. Was the best. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking, God, how am I ever going to get to this level? These these guys are. How can I get at least remotely good? Yeah. Because that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I was happy with remotely good. Yeah. And so they they um, without their knowing it were my mentors, were my teachers in a lot of ways. And and some of them w- with effort, I would ask them questions, and they would hold my hand and guide me to this is how I do this. And Carlos taught me. Th- they all taught me things. It was really unbelievable. So my Education as an industrial designer got me to doing wheelchair accessibility products, et cetera. But my education as a creature designer was never at Art Center. I learned skills at Art Center, but to learn how to design creatures, that was really from these guys. Uh, so when that job ended, um, I thought, wow, maybe this is what I really want to do now is be a creature designer. And at the time, there was just a handful of people doing it. They were like the big guys, the, the Rick Bakers and Stan Winstons and, and whatnot. Um, and then there was just like a handful of like really skilled people doing this. And I was coming in from out of left field. I mean, literally, when we not literally left field, I'm not sure where Switzerland is in <laughs> terms of Hollywood. Um, but I came in um, with no name in, in the business. And um, one of the... Th- great fortunes of working on a production like Men in Black, working with Phil Hedema and um, his art director, and again, I might be bastardizing what his title was, David Cobb. The three of us got along champion. It was so wonderful that they included me in a, a great deal of things that one would not normally be included in. And one of them was a pitch meeting with Steven Spielberg. So it was just Phil Hedema, David Cobb, myself, and Steven Spielberg in his office. He he did um, that uh, fish movie a long time ago. Finding yeah, yeah. Nemo. Finding Nemo, I Finding think Nemo. it was. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Teeth, I think it was called. <laughs> Extra teeth. No, Extra he did teeth. E.T. E.T., that that's it. it. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I actually love the connection. That was very cool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, obviously, I... Extra teeth, the extraterrestrial. It, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't like going to Universal Studios when I first came out and not really knowing who's who. You know who Steven Spielberg is. Mm. And of course, um, you know, there's not much I can say in that room uh, other than be present. If there's a questions asked, I'll answer them. But he, he's an incredible artist, as we all know. Um, and then for those of us that get to shake his hand and say hello, you'll find that he's kind of an incredible person as well. I don't know him intimately, so it's not like I can speak for everything he's done, but it's pretty obvious that he's great. But the multiple interactions I've been fortunate to have. What was the production, by the way? The first one? The first one? Yeah. With Spielberg, the pitch me. Oh, oh no. Something the, pit, the pitch was because he, he was executive of Men in Black. We were pitching concepts. Oh, okay. Of, of okay. Men in Black Ride. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I get you. Yeah. Um, and f- from that, then I was included in another meeting, which was to pitch an idea to Will Smith. I was like, ah, oh, this is so cool. And the thing that I was learning was how I cannot be myself in front of these people, which is like, oh my God, you're yeah, yeah, Will yeah. Smith. <laughs> you're Will Spielberg. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> was I nervous? Yeah. And you just have to be professional. And then after you realize that ah, I'm not actually having to be professional, it's it's easy to just kind of, you put on the appropriate hat at the time. Mm. You know, I, I, I love uh, Will Smith and his productions and I, I loved how he treated me one-on-one as we were discussing these projects. And what's amazing about certain 
celebrities. Um, you know, there, there are those you meet your heroes and it's like, Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. And others that are quite the antithesis, which is I did not expect running into, uh, Steven Spielberg, um, Super 8, for example. Um, cause I was working with JJ on Super yeah, 8. Yeah. You also have a story about like JJ geeking out. Oh yeah. With that. You can tell them after you finish your story. <laughs> but seeing Spielberg again, um, and did he remember you? That's the thing. He did. Wow. And, and by name. And uh, it was bizarre because you just don't expect that of anyone, mm. but particularly somebody who, and I'm not going to say that Stephen is special because of what he is, but he is. Yeah. Um, and he deals with so many that's, people. That's the point. Yeah. He deals with thousands of people. And for someone to remember you and remember the experience of, yeah, we were in your office. Yeah, I remember that. I was like, geez, okay. Uh, and to be gracious and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, Will Smith was very much the same way. And you meet certain celebrities and you're like, this is what it is supposed to be, y'all. You know, there's no, there's no reason to be um, above anyone else. And yeah, it's simple being a good person. Yeah. If you're good, I guess for others, it's just impossible. So, yeah. But that, that introduction of men in black and the exposure to a variety of people. And dare I say the, the, um, conditioned experience of conduct and professionalism that I was learning about how to engage, uh, were becoming part of my toolkit as yeah. a person who would work on productions. And I've, I've been fortunate to work with Stephen a, a few times. And it's the same dynamic. And why I even talk about this, because it can seem like, okay, dropping the names, talking about that time you and Steven. No, I say it because what is so important is to be genuine and to be real, not be a yes man, uh, be yourself, whatever that is. Because mm. if you are yourself and it's not working out between you and that person, that is the reality yeah, that should be not meant to be right. That kind of thing. And if you find that I would like it to be, then work on yourself and, and uh, better yourself. Don't change yourself. Yeah. But, you know, better yourself at, at being the person you aspire to be. And that was the most important experience of, um, working with these people is, you know, I find myself again with James Cameron sitting side by side for almost three years on avatar, not every day, but, you know, quite a bit of that three years was very close with him talking eye to eye. And it's not, again, to gloat about, I work with James Cameron and we're buds. It's to say, be yourself. And if Jim likes you and the skills that you have, then things will come of it. Yeah. And if he doesn't, then things won't. And vice versa. If I don't like someone, then I may not want to be around them either. Totally. totally. So it's, that's why it, it may appear to some uh, that it's name dropping, but it, a, it isn't because I have worked with these people. And B, it's about being genuine and being honest, both in your presentation of yourself and with the job that you've been given. Because when th this was one moment with Steven Spielberg where I thought, I will never work in this town again because I was myself <laughs> too much. And we were talking about Super 8 uh, and what the creature could be and Steven um, asked to borrow my sketchbook so I can just kind of scribble out an idea mm. of what he was thinking. And I think you, Dan, know my sense of humor. Um, and I think now Stephen does know mine. But he, <laughs> he did this drawing and I said, well, it's a good thing you're a director. <laughs> and, you know, 
when you do that with a person you know well, yeah, they're like, all right, 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 yeah. yeah. When you do it with somebody that you're collaborating with, it would seem like, okay, that's that's funny. I, I get you. Did you say it, and then you're, you're like your butthole puckered, and like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Everything puckered. <laughs> I think everything puckered. I just became one giant butthole actually <laughs> in front of him, and. Um, what did he say? I I think he actually did look at me like, huh? <laughs> but at the same time, I thought, you know what? That's what I would say to anyone. Yeah. And if it is insulting, then I got to work on, you know, your edit, delivery, editing <laughs> yeah. my yeah. thoughts. Um, but if it is genuine and it it it's not something I need to apologize about, I mean, it's obvious that was a joke. Um, and everything is fine. You know, yes. I haven't spoken to him since, but everything is fine. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say, you know, be genuine, be yourself, mm. you know, don't be a yes man, because I think, and, and Dan, you and I have talked about this. Yes. We, you. <laughs> yes. Wonderfully. We have been such people pleasers. Pleasers, yeah. Definitely. And I'm so used to saying yes and yes, of course I'll do that because I want to be nice. And recently I asked, somebody asked me, asked me if I could do a favor for them and because I'm starting to adopt it. You know what? <laughs> Let's say no once in a while. Yeah. Maybe I should yeah. think about myself. Yep. And if I don't, and I actually said no, that person got mad at me. Oh, totally. Because they, they're also used to because maybe they're you used being to me particular. saying yes. Yep. Um, you set the precedent. I set the precedent. So now I'm saying, and then I told a friend recently because she was complaining, and I said, you know what? I said you've been complaining about the same shit for about a week. I go, I've heard it all. I've told you what I thought. I go, you're draining me. Mm. She goes, oh, I'm just going to have to rethink this whole thing now. Yes. And I was like, thank God. Um, <laughs> because I'm at the point now where I'm not a people pleaser anymore. I I still like people. I would love people to like me, but I have to make myself happy. Yeah. And it comes down to that. And if you don't like me for who I am, you can go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, life is short. You know, you start to realize that you can actually count the days left you have. You can count the days left when you're born. It's it's finite. We don't have forever. And we've got only one shot at it yeah. that we know of. And there is there comes a time when you start to realize, yeah, this being this being cordial and nice and polite for the wrong reasons. Yes. Uh, gets gets you nowhere. Um and you there's a balance because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that may hear this and go, you know what? Yeah, it's a, you're right. Screw everyone else. This is about me, me, me. There's a balance that there's can balance. be struck. Mm. Um, but it takes, unfortunately, for people like myself, and I would assume yourself, where you've, you've done yourself a disservice yes. by being so generous, not to where people are even intentionally taking advantage of you. You're just allowing yeah, yeah, you need to take your own responsibility. That well, kind of thing. Uh, a, a publicist, in fact, it was Demi Moore's publicist. What was his name? I forgot his name. Michael Levine. Hmm. And uh, I met with him once a long time ago and he said to me, and I was complaining about something at the time. And uh, and he said, you know what? He said, there is there are three kinds of people in the world. He says there are givers and they're takers and they're equalizers and and people can't help what they are. And he goes, now a giver is somebody, if I give you $5, you're going to give me $5 back plus dinner. And then there are takers. If, you know, I give you $5, you'll probably keep that $5 and ask me for more money later. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then uh, the equalizers are if you uh, give $5, you're going to get $5 back from that person. That's it. And he goes, and people generally fall into these three categories and we all get used to it. It's like people get used to givers. Well, I'm just going to ask for more because I'm used to it. And it's not that I'm trying to be mean. But I think it's just natural, even for me. It's like, oh, who's going to say yes to me? I really need something. But I really, for my part, I try not to ask favors from anybody. It's it's how my mom taught me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which she also did me a disservice by doing that because it's hard for me to ask for help. Yeah. That is that balance again. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. But, you know, our pride, because I'm the same way where asking for anything um, is very difficult to do. And it's ridiculous. Because it's like the simplest of things. Hey, would you like a cup of tea? No, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. As though you, you, you're going to put them out by them getting right. you a cup of tea <laughs> yeah. or something like yeah. that. Do you need to use the bathroom? I'm fine. No, nope. I can hold it. <laughs> I can hold it. I can hold it. <laughs> um, what goes in your mind when you design creatures? Because, I mean, they're the most fast. I, it's so yeah. fascinating to me because I couldn't even conceive... <laughs> Literally, I yeah. can conceive of an idea like that. I mean, and they're so spectacular yeah, this, what you've you. done. So this was what, what I was going to ask as well. Um, uh, take us through, like, say, them? for example, the, the Avatar pitch meeting, because I remember you telling me the story and how you wowed James Cameron. Like, you did. <laughs> I what? didn't tell you that story. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you, you, you did something different that I, all the other designers didn't do, and this is part of your thought process. It, it, it is true. Um, and it's because it's not because I'm trying to be different. It's it's also recognizing, you know, what are what are you good at? Because I knew where I stood in this team. There was four of us at mm. Jim's house. So this is how it happened. Um, friends of mine were working on Battle Angel Alita years ago. Oh wow, way oh, before wow. the recent incarnation. Mm. That's what Jim was developing prior to Avatar, mm. and. Uh, my friend James Klein, who's like been a huge part of Star Wars, the most recent ones, he uh, he said, hey, um, they're looking for creature designers. And I know that you fancy that arena. He didn't say, you're so amazing. You got to sit. He was you know, probably just <laughs> you as aware. fancy it. <laughs> you fancy it. I do fancy it. Yeah. Um, he says, why don't you submit your portfolio? And I thought. Well, if only I had one that made sense for a creature feature, whatever this thing is that Jim's doing. Because mm. I had, oh, I got a bunch of uh, baby incubators and oxygen therapy and um, mobile devices, wheelchairs, etc. How the hell? And I got some sketches that I had done for a book that Scott Robertson had put together, which was pivotal also to my being recognized was that Scott Robertson decided when I was mentioning, what are we going to do now? He decided to start a publishing company called Design Studio Press, which is still thriving today. And it's a publishing company that celebrates um, concept design, artists, uh, kind of a different genre of art books. And it started with the the impetus for him was, I want to get my buddies back together uh, at the studio, like minds, have a beer and some pizza. And every week we'll just come in or every few weeks we'll just come in with our drawings that we're working on with the intention of I'll publish these drawings in a book. So that turned into Design Studio Press and he's done, I don't know how many books now with different artists. But in that book was where I got to kind of play. I pretend I was a creature designer because nobody was really controlling me. Mm. (laughs) There was no client. There was no one asking me to do or not to do things. So, um, 
James Klein was in that book as well. Mm-hmm. And he knew that I was a fancied creature design. So he said, submit something. And so via him, I was able to uh, be introduced to the production designer at the time and submit a portfolio. As you can imagine, James Cameron's hiring how many people would be uh, mm-hmm. submitting and how many incredible people. Yeah. So I thought, well, you know what? You, if you don't buy a lottery ticket, there's no chance of winning. I bought a lottery ticket and I was one of four people that quote amazing. unquote won. It was, it was more, amazing. more than just amazing. Mm-hmm. It was like, hold on now. Mm. A mistake must have happened. There's no way because my portfolio, not only was it not creature centric, it just, I can imagine it sucked from his point of view. He's worked uh, with amazing people. So, so what was, did he see? Did you, did he ever tell you what he saw in what you thought was a sucky yeah, portfolio with no creatures? Cause yeah, cause it, it begged the question. And I thought, what if I asked him the question? He's like, wait a minute. You're not Carlos Monte. <laughs> oh, whoops. Uh, yes, I am actually. But, um, he, what he saw was a different way of looking at things. And that gets to your original question, Dan, about quote unquote wowing James Cameron. It was mm-hmm. one of the early presentations to Jim, um, for creatures. And I was maybe, uh, um, a year into the production, but a good portion of that year was just four of us, myself. Wayne Barlow, Yuri Bartoli, and Jordan Shell, all at Jim's house in Malibu, which was an amazing thing in itself. It's like, who mm. cares if this doesn't even work out? This experience, if I'm fired next week because Jim realizes that I am actually not good, then I've had a wonderful time. This has been great. Um, so the four of us, I'm looking at their work, and it's like, if you know who Wayne Barlow is, he's an incredible incredibly creative. He sees things so different than most people in terms of his art. Um, Jordu Shell is just phenomenal in what he does. And Yuri Bartoli is an incredible artist as well, who just came off of um, Madagascar. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at my portfolio going, this is an embarrassment. And I generally felt that way. So what's good about that is talk about having a fire lit under your ass. Um, and being the one who felt the most motivated to catch up. Mm. So I worked extra hard, not that they did not, but I felt compelled to work extraordinarily hard to just try and get up to speed. So that first year, Jim allowed us and afforded us the opportunity to really understand what we're doing. Um, and I took that quite seriously. He never said, I want you to study and then give me a drawing. He just said, you know, why don't you play around with this and play around with that? So one of the creatures I was playing around with was the Banshee. And it was, uh, it was a flying creature. So I thought... To people out there, that's the bird that they have to connect to? Yeah. 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 Uh, so when I started it, I started it in a way that just made sense to me, which was as an educated industrial designer and having worked as an industrial designer working on product, you think about all the things that make something work. You think about all the things that make something marketable. You think about um, all the things that make it useful from the point you design it and it gets handed down the line of production. Still very pragmatic. Extremely, yeah, which is strange because I'm just not. Um, apparently you are. <laughs> I, I, apparently I refuse to accept it. Yeah. Uh, it's a gift. It may be. Um, so when I was tasked with Jim's uh, description was, I want this to be like a barracuda flying through the air. It's um, it's a torpedo. 
but I want it to have massive teeth, this gaping maw that's really, really frightening. And I thought, what an interesting packaging challenge thinking as a product designer. Um, and so rather than draw it with its mouth open and draw it with its mouth closed, I felt obligated to figure out the mechanism of how it would do this. And I felt that the creating an object that can, that the engineers can actually use and evolve down the road is the same thing as designing a creature that the animators can animate so that the mouth could close and the teeth don't have to penetrate through the head and you have to magically make them disappear. Mm. So I studied the things that I had learned about um, that have malleable teeth, articulate teeth or beaks. So I studied uh, parrots and gaboon vipers specifically. And I even bought a gaboon viper skull and a parrot skull. And I learned about this bone at the back of the head uh, near the ear called the quadrate bone and how it pushes another bone called the palatine bone, which like a um, rack and pinion pushes the teeth out of the snake or on a parrot allows them that tremendous dexterity to pop open a small seed with the tip of their beaks. Mm. So when I was presented to Jim, the idea of here's the mouth closed, here's the mouth open with giant teeth. Here's a diagram of how that would work. And here's the reference point of these things using the quadrate and the palatine bone. And I remember Jim giving me this strange look of like, what? Not like, I don't understand you, but this is a different approach. And, you know, in short and paraphrasing, he was uh, appreciative of how I would go about answering questions and solving problems as opposed to, which I do believe is an easier thing to do, which is just do the visceral image of a mouth open, teeth and slobber. And it's that's kind of like the sex part, the sexy part of creature design. It's like sex cells. You've got that terrifying moment. It's like, ah, but can he close his mouth? Will he look cool with his mouth closed? And it's both, uh, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing because designing it the way, the way I design tends to be, has the potential to be very boring because I'll show the creature with his mouth closed first because that's that dormant moment is the, the portrait that we want to have to make sure that we like this, the look of this creature in this static calm moment. Doing the open mouth thing is that's an easy sell because we all, respond to ivory teeth and mm. fleshy mouth. So um So he didn't make a mistake. He chose you for the right reason. Well yeah. <laughs> uh, who knows, maybe in hindsight he's thinking, gosh, what a mistake. If I only made ten billion dollars. <laughs> Damn you Neville. <laughs> um well again it was like minds. Jim is a very, very, very thorough He's pragmatic. a scientist, isn't he? I he, mean, like, he just, is, you know. He's all sorts of things. Mm. He's he's an incredible, incredible individual, and um, I, I think that he respected the fact that I approached design that way. But I also the reason I ended up in a position I was with um, him on the production was because I had a lot of experience managing groups of people and projects going through various phases of product development all the way to manufacturing. So that's very helpful when you have a group of other concept designers and you need somebody to help bring it through the finish line. It's not to say I was the only esthetician. Um, there were plenty better than I was, but I was the one that Jim chose to help wrangle it all together and, and manage it. And, and since then, I've really liked that side 
of, and, and I've also provoked others to allow that aspect of creature design to happen within productions mm -hmm. because it's, it's missing having a singular person, entity who will take the design all the way through. It doesn't even have to be their design. It's kind of like you've got, you've got a costume designer. That costume designer manages the whole vision. There are other illustrators doing maybe the, um, the actual pen on paper drawing. Same with a, if the title existed of a creature, creature producer, creature lead, um, what you do is you maybe are designing some of the stuff, but you're managing the vision all the way through based on what the producers, directors have approved. Mm. And it's an important, um, thing that if, if it's just a designer who then passes the baton, it can, and sometimes it's necessary, but it can lose its way visually and find itself on screen in a different way because there was no one there to say the reason that we went this way, went this was way because of this six yeah. months ago. And it's like, oh, that's important to know. Yeah. Yeah. So it drifts from the original vision. So how did you, you know, it's interesting because it actually uh, says online that Star Wars was the reason why you got interested in creature design, but you've now disproven that. It wasn't Star Wars. Well, it's, it's the one that could be pointed to the easiest. Um, Star Wars was one of those things that influenced so many of us to want to be doing stuff in film. Uh, for me, Star Wars was the thing that made me want to be in film in some capacity, but it was because I thought the only way to be in film was to be an actor. I saw Luke Skywalker, and I loved his costume, and I loved that he was on the Death Star, and I thought, how amazing would it be? Because I know that's not real, but how amazing would it be to be standing there in the sand of Tatooine or on the, the deck of the spacecraft I guess the only way that can happen is if I'm an actor, then I can wear the costume and I could be amongst these sets and be so cool to role play and get yeah. paid billions of dollars. Uh, and that's you know, billions. Yeah, billions. <laughs> but do you think you still can? I mean, with, with everyone you know now, I mean, couldn't you say, Hey, it's like, okay, because I, I used to be very good friends with Jerry Weintraub and he started out as an actor before he mm -hmm. became a manager, producer, and he actually gave himself acting parts in his films. Yeah. So you could do that too. I could. Is it the right thing to do? Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I will. Well, I, It's not I, a wrong thing to do. No, it, it's, it's um, make sure that you've got everything else is covered. If, if you're, if you're writing the thing that you're writing yourself into, make sure that you're, it's written well enough and you're paying attention to it while it's being shot. If you're directing it and you've decided that you can put yourself in a role, make sure that you're not going to leave that moment um, to other hands that aren't as prepared to handle that scene because you want to be in it. There's too many people that I know that are always angling to get themselves into a role when they should not be. It's like, dude, you've got a job to do today. You do not need to be on camera. I understand the seduction of it and how fun it would be. And, and you know, quite frankly, um, for what I do and a lot of creators on the other side of the camera, there's no back end. There's no residuals. Mm. But if you can squeeze yourself into a role and maybe even have a line, you know. You, a little bit of cash here and there. You get a little cash. Yeah. Piranha, you asked the question earlier. Yes. I was in Piranha. And the have you seen Piranha? <laughs> well, I need to. <laughs> it's fun. It's yeah. a fun. It's fun. Let me put this way: an ex-boyfriend. He, oh, 
he got a pet piranha. This uh, is when we were, you know. How do you get a pet 17? piranha? Why, the, why do you call a piranha a pet? <laughs> you can get, he did this because he wanted to see it eat things. Of course. Things. Oh, yeah. God. Because he's 18. And he was, I mean, I mean, I'm sure he was, he's a nice guy, but I mean, it was quite disgusting. Yeah. And so he, we actually went into a pet store and I go, why are we here? And he, he goes, I'm looking for a little tiny mouse. Oh. Sure. And yeah. he went in to buy a tiny mouse. They wouldn't sell it to him. Thank God. So he bought a bunch of fish instead and he just poured it in and that piranha ripped through everything. And it was the most horrific yet fascinating. Thing mm. I have ever seen before, and I couldn't. I was disgusted, but I couldn't peel my eyes. Well, that's away. why nature documentaries are so popular. Yes, <clears throat> I, I I force myself to watch uh-huh. all that stuff because yeah. one, I feel it's the job to be a, a good creature designer. You need to know predation and yes. the horrors of it. But um, piranha acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I still get residual checks today. Really? Yeah, I, I got one. Badass. I know. My favorite one, which I think is, I've set it out to be framed, was for two cents. I got a two dollar one the other yeah. day. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. So when people, you know, think, "Oh, you get residuals from being in that film," I say, "Yes, yes, I, I do. do. I, I got get two them. cents the other day. <laughs> Boom! I got a penny once. I've beaten you all. Oh wow! Yeah, there used to be a um, a bar that if you brought in a residual check under, I think, heard of this. was it under a dollar or something? Residuals, like the bar residuals. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, really? You get a free drink. <laughs> it's around this area, yeah. yeah. Um, I think they still exist. I'm not sure. I'm not a, a drinker, so I don't Well, I would imagine yeah. they go out of business pretty soon with that. that uh, yeah, because everybody just come in, hey. Yeah, we've all got that got check. like 20. Um, let's go. I'd, I'd love to go through your what you've designed. So you design the Piranha and Piranha. Yes. Or Piranha 3D. Is that what it was? Piranha I was think it was called Piranha 3D. Was it Piranha yeah. 3D? It was the second Piranha film. There's a Piranha film back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the newer one. Right. And then yeah, with Piranha, Elizabeth Shue. Right. Yeah. Piranha, there's Piranha Double D. Three Double D. Three yeah. double did D. you do that one as well? Or? No. No. Okay. Yeah, so you I was, did. I was unavailable. Oh. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> did you uh, also do uh, Cloverfield 8 or am I mistaken? Um, I don't think there was a Cloverfield 8. What am I thinking of? You're thinking of um, well, well, there's like there's Cloverfield. Oh, so I'm I'm, I'm mixing the two. I'm mixing that's Super Eight. You're thinking I'm thinking of, of Super Eight and uh, Cloverfield, and I yeah. just mixed the two up. Sorry, so, I did Field of Dreams. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> That'd be awesome. That would be nice. I was like, what? what I was creature like, really? is Field of Dreams? Cloverfield Super Clover Super Field of Dreams. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. Pardon me. Yeah. So, Prana. I started off with Garfield. If you want to talk about like oh. my first <gasps> film, Wicked. Yeah, it was. It, and again, it. Did uh, you meet Bill Murray? No, nah. I, I was way into post production. But yeah. it, everything I've designed um, has been a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. And I designed specifically the teeth and the upper palate and the eyeballs at one point of Garfield. So it wasn't like a whole girl yeah, yeah, character. Yeah. And that was just because I was working for Rhythm and Hughes because I knew them from fellow uh, graduates from Art Center, and Nick Pugh specifically, who was designing Garfield. So I got to do some details, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. And I, for me, I know it was just a tooth, but it was like I'm working on a major motion picture. production. Yeah. And I was. Yeah. You say I worked in Garfield. I was like, no way. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Yeah. I just pulled it up. Okay, so we have Men in Black, Alien Attack, Creature Design, Planet of the Apes, did props. Minor- minority Report, Concept Designer. Ooh. 
Garfield. And here it is, Garfield the movie. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic Four, props, The Chronicles of Narnia. I've even forgotten that. Creature one. designer, Superman <laughs> Returns, costume illustrator, Cloverfield, creature designer, Watchmen, creature designer, Star Trek, character what? designer, head creature designer, actor. See, you were an actor in that. I was. Avatar, lead <laughs> creature designer, Piranha 3D, Tron Legacy, Just Right, Super 8. Oh, Just Right. Let's go back to that. Okay. What is actor, it? jellyfish, documentary <laughs> narrator. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't remember a jellyfish documentary. What well, was the jellyfish? Na- no, was it, what, what part was that? I haven't seen it in a very long time. It's when he has his knee. Um, he's, he's holed up at home because of his knee injury. And so he's sitting there and they're trying to punctuate the fact that this is so boring for him. So he's watching a I do nature this now, show yes. of a jellyfish. And my buddy, Scott Robertson, his wife was the editor of that film. And she said, no, you have a great soft voice that would actually lull people to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we're looking for in this scene. That's so awesome. I had to like turn up the so like The jellyfish. Exactly. This. Yes. Are you getting <laughs> residuals on that? Yeah. Good. But, uh, collectively, I make probably five bucks. No, a little less <laughs> in residual. <laughs> like all, all the films: Star Trek, Piranha, and just oh, one. Green Lantern, oh, lead huge. creature designer, Prometheus. Oh, uh, the engineer. Famous. That's a famous one. Oblivion, the engineer. Concept art: Star Trek Into Darkness, lead creature designer Noah, creature and character designer Star Trek Beyond, creature designer. I mean, and look at your television: Terra Nova, creature and character designer. Face off. You were a judge for face off. Yeah. Judge, jury, and execution. Boom. Guys, creature, and characters. And your resume sucks, man. Yeah. I've. It's pretty brutal. I don't even know why we have you on. Yeah. I mean, can we, have somebody, can we have somebody successful on? You know what, though? Honestly, <laughs> if, if you look, if you were to look up another other creature designer, I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> not right now. Not right now. Yeah, don't do it in front of me. Um, you'll find that we all have pretty impressive resumes in that regard because we just move around from production to production. I, I look at a friend's resume who's a creature designer. It's like, oh my God, you worked on that and you worked on this. Mm. I was at a this event called uh, Lightbox in Pasadena just recently. It was unbelievable. It was the first ever convention, if you want to call it that, that is dedicated to concept art, concept artists, which is really cool because I do believe that they are the unspoken heroes of uh, does that get any recon- does that get any recognition at say the academy awards or what would that be under the umbrella of technically no in in my opinion yes it is covered under production design no um so the production designer granted they they should and they get the recognition for the overall vision no. of something but the, the people you know take a look at marvel uh, the marvel stories are are great and fun the marvel script Marvel scripts are written well. It's what do you know what you're going to get? There's a good guy. There's a bunch of good guys now. And there's a bad guy and there's a fight at the end. We know the rhythm of what we're going to get from Marvel. In my opinion, dare I say, I've worked on no Marvel films. I'm a fan of them. But in my opinion, to go see a Marvel movie is one, because you're invested in the characters now. But it is to see the spectacle of design. The Iron Man suit is... Not just the Iron Man suit. It is the toy. It is the game. It is the evolution of that suit and all the iterations that have happened are done by incredible, incredible designers. Mm. You don't know who they are, but everyone knows the Iron Man suit and covets it in a lot of ways. Everyone talks about 
what the Hulk looks like. Everyone talks about that particular gun or spaceship and that moment where when that thing came in and that guy jumped on and the blah, blah, blah. These are the visual artists responding to, granted, script, um, story, the narrative. You always have to respond to the narrative. Yeah. But the narrative doesn't say, and this is what the Iron Man suit looks like. Just make it a better image. You know, these are, these are the people that do that work. And I was standing next to, um, one of the guys, but he's kind of one of the head guys, Ryan Minerdink, who designed a lot of the look of Marvel. I mean, he's a freaking god in the world of what we do. Mm. Do not look his name up. <laughs> so much more uh, so stuff much on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, he's he, he's phenomenal and he's wonderful as a person and humble. And that whole what was so interesting about this Lightbox Expo event was. More than any industry, and I apologize to other industries that I've been a part of, but, you know, also take note, more than any industry, everyone there got along, liked one another, respected one another, admired one another. Um, it was about helping one another. You share the wealth. You share the information of your techniques. That's what people were there for. It's like, here's what I do, guys. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. It yeah. Is. I've never heard of an active one. That's like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you have to be protective over your edge, sort of. Yeah. It, it no, is, actually, you're right. It's it's an important thing that you don't give away what you're good at. So let me bring up a complete hypocritical thing to do. Be a teacher. So me as a professional working in the industry, who still I recognize there are people out there that should have the job that I have. So... If that's the case, that people want what I do and people could have what I do if they got the opportunity to show what they do, because, you know, it's, it's, I'm just an artist who's drawing pictures of things. Are there other people that can do that? Absolutely. So to knowingly go to, and we're talking young artists, go to a school and with these budding young artists who are going to graduate in a few months even and be competing directly against you to show them what you do. To share with them your insights and secrets, et cetera, to say, this is how I got this job. This mm. is how I do this technique, if it's a value. Seems um, not hypocritical, is the wrong word. Counterintuitive. Counterintuitive, moronic, yeah. um, dumb to do that. But it is not um, because you have to have the confidence that you're, you're going to be hired for perhaps experience and, and, and experience being the biggest thing. Uh, relationships, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of, it's a karma thing in a way. And I'm not a big fan of karma. No offense. I'm not a big fan of, um, pre, predestination. You know, the script's been written for you. I'm, I'm a firm believer well. in it's stuff just happens, man. Yeah. You know? And I don't want to get too deep into that because it's an easy topic to get, uh, philosophical and deep. But simply put, the I'm a believer in you do good, and the chances are that the good's going to return. You know, the five dollar thing you're referencing. You hand somebody five bucks because they need it, or even better, you give somebody five bucks because they didn't ask for it and you thought they could do something with it. Yeah, um, and you do it without telling other people you did it. Um, I was about to tell you something I did when I lived in the arts district, but by telling you, I'm I'm going against what I said about being nice to people there's a lot of homeless downtown yeah you should just be a good person it's, it's simple as that and 
if there is a return on that, great. If there's not, it shouldn't be ever with the expectation of getting something uh, in return. Getting something in return. I, yeah. I can't yeah. stand and it might just be the choice of words that people don't understand, but I really find it discouraging when I hear somebody say, I I love to do good for other people. Why is that? It makes me feel good. But that's the wrong bloody reason. It should not be about you. Yes, a byproduct of doing good things is that you would feel good. Yeah. Don't make that the motivation. Because it's it's not about in fact, you know what? It should not feel good. Uh, because your job is not done. If you help one person, yeah. you have scratched the surface of all the things that need to be done on this planet. I've gone off topic. No. Sorry. That's, no, no. no that's, I mean, that's this perfectly is... fine. This is what we like about the podcast. We can go off in any different direction and stuff like that. But I, that's that's really cool. No, but I agree with you because I hear too many and I see it on Instagram. Oh, I did this today. I did that today. And I was just like, yeah, you're just bragging. Yeah. And, um, but it's like you said, it's just like, do good for the sake of doing good. You don't have to advertise it because it, at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's no. about them. And it was, about, it's always about doing something better for the other person because that's what charity is. You can advertise that you're involved with charity, um, to, to raise, try to get more people yeah, involved in charity, awareness, but, but not mm. like, I spent my entire Thanksgiving working in a soup kitchen today, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's just yeah. like... It, I guess it, it's how you do it. It you is. Know what I mean? It yeah. is how you do it. It's presentation. It always It's all presentation. Yeah. But as far as giving, like as an actor, giving like somebody else the edge, I teach people my technique all the time. I, I trained in England and I teach people what I learned there because you can't learn it here. But for an actor, I feel like you bring something out of your life because I feel like for an artist, your life is your greatest masterpiece. Mm -hmm. It's not about what you design, what you do or the roles you play. It is, it is you. Um, your experience and the people you love who love you back that is to me uh, the greatest work of art for any human being actually but I have totally forgot oh so you either <laughs> I have like for instance I have had different experiences in my life than Dan hmm. uh, or you or, or somebody else and only I can bring that into a character mm -hmm. or into a piece whatever Dan brings something else it can't be replicated yeah. But that's because it's personal. Yeah. The, the, the don't you tears. think it should be personal? Art? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, but in the context of when you're working for someone to realize their vision. Oh, yes. Um, that, and that's, I think that's the misconception of, say, visual artists. Actors are supposed to, you're supposed to bring that emotional side of things. A visual artist Yes, you're supposed to have provocative images that can be emotional in, in a way, but your job is to help the person who hired you realize their vision. Yes. So if you come in with the attitude of, well, I'm an artist with my vision. It's me. Like, exactly. And there's a lot to do, and they're very disappointed that it didn't turn out, the film didn't turn out the way they had thought it was going to turn out. Mm. Don't even anticipate what it's going to turn out to be like it's it's a waste of time and it's certainly not something worth lamenting over if it didn't reach your expectations and once you accept the fact that you're hired to to realize somebody else's vision mm -hmm. the, the experience the real experience of um, we're not going to use your design or we're going to take your red square and turn it into a blue sphere but it still is the essence of what you came up with. Like, no, you've destroyed. <laughs> it's like, that's okay. And it yeah. makes the job actually 
um, fun, not just tolerable, but it makes it fun because you're part of, and you'll disagree. I, I still to this day disagree with certain things like, oh, I wouldn't go that route, but it is, I didn't write the script. It's not my storyline. It's not, I'm not directing it. Mm. Um, and if it bugs you so much that it's a horror to work on these productions, the answer is staring you in the face and that is do your own then. Um, and I'm not saying that sarcastically or arrogantly. It's like, oh, the do your own movie. But literally, do get it, get yourself into a position where you can actually now art direct other people and, mm. and help them realize your vision. Mm. And then you'll realize, I think I'm happy being on the board because <laughs> that's really hard to do. Yeah, and you're uh, you're going in that direction, aren't you? Like creating your own stuff and trying to. Yeah, yeah like yeah. all of us, we're you know, diversifying or, or trying to find new creative outlets for what we do. But I mean, I, honestly, the reason I got into creature and film is because I love, I didn't know it at the time, but I love storytelling. I love the idea of um, d- literally directing people mm-hmm. in, in, in getting buddies together who are good at making a set, making a costume and, and guiding that. Um, knowing that I'm not the best at any of those things. But I think that I'm potentially good at directing people who are way better at me than uh, at their craft. So that's something I've always wanted to do. And being a creature designer has kind of gotten me closer to it. Yeah. And um, as you intimately know, mm-hmm. um, bringing you on board for a, a production that I have been developing in the hopes to sell it someday. Mm. Um, Will that happen? I'm not delusional about any of it, and it's it's helpful if you're not. Um, I'm very hopeful to the point of being at delusion's door. <laughs> I'm just trying not to walk through it. Yeah. Cautiously but, optimistic. Yeah, yeah, there are times, though, when somebody says, oh, we're very interested, and I'll open that door just a bit, and I like, uh, don't have go a look in, in. Have a look in. Yeah, yeah. Don't go in. Um, James, buddy old pal, how yeah. you doing? I got a thing. Yeah. So Steven. tell us about working with J.J. Uh, Abrams. He is awesome. They're all awesome in their own way. It's kind of like if you've had good, intimate relationships with people, um, you know, there could be some bad experiences, of course, but hopefully you should be able to say, yeah, that's that person I had a great relationship with. There was, it didn't work out because, um, they had halitosis, but they were <laughs> lovely, great sense of humor. But, you know, every, everyone is, has been, um, it sounds fluffy and safe. But I have yet to not have a good experience with um, a director. I've had challenging moments, um, as we all do, and I've had disagreements, which you you learn are not um, something for you to be upset about because it's their vision you're trying to realize. Yeah. So, uh, JJ was he's a unique individual in so many ways. In that, a he's just um, he's a really sweet guy. He's He's grassroots. He came from that place of sincerity, which is, I just want to make movies with my Super 8 camera. And hence, Super 8 was born. And his experience and his stories of his life and how he got there just resonate with any of the people that he brings with him on, on his journey. And it, it makes you want to do better uh, because... It's such an obvious thing. If you treat people well, they'll treat you well. If you are hiring people and you're nice to them um, and you're nice to other people around them, they'll see that and want to do well. 
it, JJ just, he's just built that way. He couldn't help himself, uh, but be nice. And, you know, I've been in the, um, in not all scenarios of challenges the film with him, but I've been in the trenches with him, uh, on a number of productions. And that's when you get to see the true character of how someone works, you know, their breaking point when stuff is not going well. Mm. And when they start, you know, throwing food from craft services at, at people, which I've never seen that, but, um, JJ was always, uh, he was an even keel, stable guy. And like I said, you get to see the true character under the, the duress of filmmaking. Yeah. So I, I have nothing but great to say about JJ because he has been such a pleasant experience. And you know, you look at the projects that I've been involved with him in and the projects I've not been star Wars in particular. It's like, wow, what an amazing thing to see him do uh, is take it to uh, almost to the next level because that's, that's, maybe offensive to people or the Star Trek people. <laughs> yeah. But it, he's taken it to, um, a, another level and another place, which I absolutely love. Um, yeah, he, he, he's the greatest thing about JJ. If I can like pinpoint one thing is collaboration. Uh, he will ask your opinion of some like big things. Uh, like when I read the super eight script, his question to me was, what do you think? Do you have any notes? Like, oh my God, really? Uh, do you want my notes? Um, and do you really want my notes? Or is that just one of those nice things that you know, people say? And he's like, nope, generally want your notes. And what you realize with someone like him is when you submit, share your opinion that has been asked for, um, he doesn't bark back. And I remember him saying once when I was, I had a little bit of trepidation about responding because I knew I had an opinion that was maybe counter to a moment or two in something. And he said, look, if, if you don't like something and I prefer what I've got, I'm going to go with that. Um, don't, don't worry about it. And so I shared it with him and that's when you realize you're in a safe room. He welcomes your ideas, doesn't have to take them, doesn't have to candy coat, not wanting to take them. And it just, it opens up collaboration. And when you realize the necessity and the value of collaboration, you know that that's why JJ does so well at what he does because he's inclusive with everyone and respectful of everyone. And it's, uh, that's, that's something you're kind of born with and it's hard to like make that part of you. So he's fortunate that he is that way. We'll thank his parents. Yeah. I'm what, such a fan of his. I, that's one of my dreams is to work with him. Yeah. Him in particular. And Spielberg. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, J.J. Totally. Abrams, I'm J.J. Abrams is, I don't know. Yeah, I've he heard, speaks to me. Yeah. I've, I've had a couple of people who've worked with him just say he's just super, super nice. Um, the hardest thing about working with J.J. is how much I laugh with him. Yeah. He makes me laugh so much that I, that's I, awesome to hear. I just sound like an idiot because I giggle. <laughs> so he's hilarious um i was just gonna ask when you're talking about uh, what notes did any notes end up in super eight's final kind of um that you the, that you gave no probably not and i don't even recall what the notes were yeah. um, except the it, creature well that was different and that was something that you know jj and i and and steven spielberg we're all talking about is what is mm. the creature. And it, yeah. was a, it was a long discovery process. Um, and I remember at one point, I just didn't feel like I was discovering it for him. And I said, at any point you feel 
you need to move on. I, I get it because I've been working on this for months and I haven't come up with it. And thankfully, he kept me on board and he just started throwing out a few ideas, which resonated for a whole new direction. So yeah. I ran with that and we ended up with the current creature. But it was um his first Star Trek oh. where uh, he... Is this the ice monster? Yeah. 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 It was the the big red creature okay. specifically. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, JJ, I've read the script and the script read as something. Uh, then there was some changes. It went from a desert to um, an ice planet. And the description, um, I was, I read it and I thought, well, that, that sounds interesting, but, and I don't want to be rude to the writers, but are you open to maybe rethinking some of the ways this is described as a creature and, and just coming up with, I don't have to make it be the way it was described. Are you open to that? And he's like, Oh yeah, just tell me what you're thinking. And so I, I was so excited about, cause that was the first film I'm doing with, uh, excuse me, that was the second film I did uh, Cloverfield yeah. with him. But I was so excited to be on this production with him that I wanted to make him very happy. And as we all do, and so I was like, do I dare step out of what I've been asked to do, which is just design a creature and do storyboards for a sequence? Mm. And so I came up with an idea respectfully and I did a, a few storyboards of how it could play out. And I won't say that my storyboards are that sequence, but it was of influence to that moment. And, um, and it, that was again the whole, welcoming of collaboration yeah, yeah, yeah. is so important because you know jj's got the experience i could have sat back and said whatever you tell me to do i will do it but here's where like i was saying earlier being real and being um you ask your client are you cool with me telling you my opinion do you want my opinion about this mm. uh, because i actually think that you got to be respectful because it's a delicate area you don't want to say i think your idea is bad and my idea is better mm. that's not the way to do it presentation but you could you know say i i have an idea for something that might be compelling for you if you're open to it and when when you're allowed to be that way and you're not just a yes man um it, it changes the dynamic you have with this person because they know that you're going to be honest with them when they say, Hey, what do you think of this? Oh, it's amazing. Oh my God. That's awesome. Oh God. You got this. This is great. You go girl. If I'm directing something and I bring an idea to someone and I get those responses, Hey, you can smell that casting agents. <laughs> <He's> like, <"Yeah." laughs> and, and what you are asking is no, seriously, I want your real opinion. And that's the groundwork that has to be laid for allowing somebody the security that I'm not going to fire you if you tell me um, that I, I actually didn't like the script. Really? Yeah. Oh, why? Well, because here's what I, do you want me to tell you what I would have done with it? Yeah, I guess so. And I can listen to it as it has been done. I've, I've presented my script to people and some have said, this is really good. Mm. It's like, okay, fine. Thank you. Really? What do you think? Actually, I think it's really good. Oh, okay. Thanks. Oh, okay. Um, and then there's others like, here's what I would do different. This is what you need to change. Yeah. And I've read the notes and thought, that's a good idea. And the rest is like, that's yeah, not, I'm not going there. Yeah. So, you know, you got to believe in yourself enough, but also be open to um, the probability that there's room for improvement. Yeah. 
Yeah. But that was one of the moments with JJ where I thought, this is a great learning experience. This whole being open to other people about their ideas, using them or not. Um, But it was nice to be of influence. But if I can just throw one thing in about design. Throw it away. (laughs) With creature design specifically, but it, it relates to any design. JJ did say to me, I want the creature to be big, be red, and have eyes all over its body. And as someone who has studied enough about animals, I thought, I can't really find a reference for an animal that have, have oh, eyes all over its body. Spider? No, no, no. And even that, it's not all over its body. It's, it's still localized. Right yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's multiple eyes. So that exists. And and again, if it exists, you can't just say, well, a spider has them so we can put them anywhere. You've got to understand why does a spider have them? And what is the utility of it? So that you can then slightly bend the rules to make it a touch more creative. And so I, I struggled with JJ on not it being big or being red. Um, there was a lot of eyes. There was the eyes. Mm. The eye thing, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to be able to reconcile eyes, multiple eyes on this. That's more of a Guillermo del Toro thing because it's more fantasy. Yeah. And with fantasy, you can get away with things that just almost make no sense. It's a, it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a dream sequence. But if it's a real, even though it's alien and we don't know what aliens look like, there are laws in the universe that are actually a constant. There are going to be some strange things that we discover, but there are laws that make an organism be or not. There's mutations that you can tap into for a brief moment so you can have something really obscure. Um, but to have an elegant predatory creature, you've got to make sense of it. And I feel that that is the job. Again, I'm going into my background as uh, an industrial designer. No, that's fine. If you are designing something, your job is to make sure that the engineering, the biological engineering of it does make sense. And that I'd say the most important thing about this is if you have the tools to articulate to the client, this is why I'm proposing what I'm proposing. It's not what you asked for. So bear with me a second. Um, If you say, I didn't do it. I didn't do what you asked. Well, why didn't you, Neville? Because I just, I didn't like it. It didn't feel You need a reason. And not only just a reason, but a reason that's very compelling. And if the the compelling reason is based on something not subjective, uh, but science, it's an objective thing that you can reference and you talk about, well, if we do eyes, we can blah, blah, blah. I walk through a justification of it. And in interviews in the past, particularly when Star Trek was on the radar of interviewers, there are some people that were pretty upset about the fact that, you know, the creature fans, you know, it's a red creature on a white snow. planet. Yeah, like, yeah. That is that's stupid. It's like, actually, A, when JJ said, I want a big red creature because that would look cool. It's like, okay, I get it. That's the vision. Now, for me, I feel like I need to have, I'm going to reverse engineer from that vision to come up with a reason of why would it be there. Yeah. So let's not have it be a creature that's on the ice. It's not from the top mm-hmm. surface. It is a sea creature. And it is. You don't see it, but that creature was designed to swim first. Mm. So much like a lobster, which is very similar to in a lot of ways, it is a creature that would live under the sea. So underwater, it's very nimble, very capable. So ice is water. And ice is water. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But I, I was thinking that this giant creature that's chasing Kirk we gotta have we gotta have a rule that slows it down. 
you know, some kind of obstacle beyond a wall that Kirk can get through. And I thought, well, let's have it be. It's kind of literally, it's a fish out of water. So it's not as good on snow. So the reason it blows through the ice is because it's coming from underneath. It's been tracking the polarilla mm-hmm. from underneath the ice. Yeah. And that's its first predation. And it sees Kirk. And it's like, oh, he looks yummy. Food. And, and the reason... I was able to kind of reverse engineer the red was saying, you know, the, one of the greatest predatory creatures in the ocean is the Humboldt squid, which is red. And the reason we can hypothesize that it is red is because red is the first color to fall off the spectrum in the ocean and become invisible. Meaning it's invisible to detection from all of the creatures. So mm. it, it can't be got and it can't be detected. Uh, ergo, Red does make sense if it came onto land and was hungry. And it's, again, one of those things that JJ, your boss, plants the seed. And the seed may make you think, I get what you're trying to achieve here. But I feel like, particularly with Star Trek fans who like to really um, um, figure the whys of stuff. Well, they would have loved that explanation, though, right? And it's a valid one. Yeah. You know, as a creator, you you get to make up stuff. Yeah. And then they're like, reasons. oh, okay, that makes sense. And it makes it better for the designer who's now evolving the thing because now I understand what I'm supposed to do. When you're just doing what you're told, it's you can get lost so easily. And when you're trying to ask the client, did you want, like, how big did you want these horns? Because that's not even a question to necessarily ask. Mm. It's, it's like, not, why would they have big horns? Why would they have why? horns at all? A, why do they have horns? Yeah. B, what kind of surface are they in? Um, you know, do we know why deers have the horns that they do? Not necessarily, but when you're creating this stuff, it helps to have something to qualify and justify biological feasibility. That is an engineer, a designer, industrial designer thinking. <laughs> Is if we're going to do this, if we're going to do big wheels in the back of the car, because you think that's like a, that's a motorhead's car, that's a beefy, butch looking vehicle. Yeah. Then we need to understand what that means and the impact that has on fuel consumption, aerodynamics, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you know what to do as you're designing it. And what's funny about all of that, that I've said. So I haven't worked with James Cameron for three years. I'm working on the last creature. I've got like a few weeks before I'm done. Mm-hmm. And it's the Thanator, which was really Jim's baby. And he had some very specific sketches that I was trying to um, uh, consolidate, reconcile, and make it now work as a final design. So the one he was, he was involved with all of them, but it was the one that really was Precious to him. Which, one's, which one was the Thanator? Thanator is the one that Neytiri rides. It's that large oh, yes. black panther. Oh, okay. It's a huge one. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so Jim had had three years of me saying, parrots, quadrate bone, you know, palatine bone, um, this, that. Yeah. So I'm doing this thing and Jim had this idea for teeth. Um, and I felt like there was a contradiction of the front tooth to the back teeth. And I was explaining it to him. He said, Dude, sometimes it's okay to just do cool things. <laughs> like, You're like, all right. Like, yeah, I forgot about that. I got, I got caught up on my own um, validation, justification, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but even then, I will, what that taught me, and I, I've embraced more so now than ever before, is I will sometimes start off with, I'm just going to do something cool. Yep. But I have enough reference 
an experience to be able to figure out why it's cool and make sense of it. Yeah. yeah. I'm not always successful at it, but that's that's kind of the, the way I work now. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing a hell of a job. Well, thank yeah. You. Like, I mean, we I could we could keep talking for like another two hours and stuff like that. I mean, we could quickly probably uh, talk about um, uh, Face Off. How long were you on Face Off for? Um, I know a lot of people God. love that show. It was a good show. I, I was on for, I think, 13 um, seasons. seasons? Episodes? No, <laughs> no residuals. Minutes. <laughs> I think it was 13 seasons. or ran for 13 seasons and Seconds? I was on for 12. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was... Um, it was a show that I remember being offered to discuss it, which was, you know, we have a position. Uh, Patrick Totopoulos is doing some other work and he's not available. And they're looking at other candidates for judging. And I didn't know anything about the show. Um, I'd heard the term face off, but I didn't know anything about it. I was like, God, John Travolta is doing yeah, a reality yeah. show. <laughs> I'm in. Um, face off. Face off. So... <laughs> I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I always thought in referencing other reality shows, I thought, I don't think I want to be involved with anything that's about drama and that's like manipulated reality. Yeah. I had yeah. just thought, ah. so I kind of went in thinking, well, I'll try it out, but I, I let me watch the show first. I'll do it for one year. I'll do it for, <laughs> I'll do it for 12 seasons, maybe not 13. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I watched the show and thought, Oh, hold on now. This seems to be like a celebration of, of talent versus a, a true competition show where people are at each other's throats. And so when I spoke to them and met with Mackenzie and the producers, my biggest question was how much of my role, the judge's role, would be about when we talk to the, um, the uh, artists, would be about education because I would love nothing more than to not just tell them that you suck. That sucks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it would be, we're afraid we're letting you go, but these are the reasons why. That So you're giving people at least mm-hmm. information as to how to improve because that's what teaching is all about. I mean, I, I get every job that I do, the majority of what I do is wrong. And towards the end of a production, you start to get, get it right. So um, not only did they assure me that that's what the show is about, that's what the show and the experience was about. I mean, there were moments... I would say at the beginning when I was starting to understand how to do it, where I was harsher than I would normally be. Um, not, I shouldn't say normally. I would, I was harsh, but there was no sidebar conversation to where I could then be the teacher. Yeah. Enough. So you became kind mm-hmm. of like the villain. Well, I, I became the um, Simon Cowell. So yeah, there were moments where I was, there were moments where Glenn was, there were moments where V was, um, the bad guy. And I'm sure there's a contestant or two, or three or four, that may not like me to this day because I was a bit harsh. Uh, but I never said anything. None of us ever said anything for effect for mm. the show. Um, and and I love that the show really embraced that. And what was so wonderful to witness was how we had nothing to do with this and the show never the producers never said to contestants to my knowledge and i don't think that they would have ever done this hey guys work together get along it's the opposite of what you would do on a reality yeah show. totally um and you would see somebody somebody who's competing for the same prize who's in peril 
where their clay fell off their armature or the mold is stuck and the other contestants would come to help them when they're not quite done with, you know, that's time that you can use to yeah. beat somebody else. I watched the the great, is it the great British Bake, Bake Off? Bake Off, yeah. Right, it's called something different here, but they do that with each other. They'll help each other finish their decorations. And I was like, wow, that is real camaraderie and teamwork. Yeah, because they're British. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all British people are good. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, just, to, just to quickly finish off... Uh, do you have, do you like Dark Crystal? I love Dark Crystal. Have you seen Age of Resistance yet? I haven't. It's so fucking good. I was just telling my wife last night, I said, we got to watch this oh, because so I'm good. hearing that from it, so many people. Wait, yeah. what is this? Do you know the Dark Crystal movie, right? Yeah, but I've never watched it. Oh, I know, oh I know. God. So what is this? It's uh, Jim Henson. Puppets, course, puppets, puppets, Henson, all yes. puppets. Yeah, and that shouldn't work yeah. <laughs> in today's market. But it does. Puppets. Yeah. And it's wonderful that so it does. Netflix has made a TV series, which is a prequel to the movie. Oh. And it's all puppets with CGI now added in like bits and pieces. But it's just the world that they created. And I watched the documentary after it, mm-hmm. like an hour and a half documentary, and I just geeked out. Yeah. It was phenomenal watching from the very early stages, what you've talked about, where they you know, design it yeah, and then Brian it moves Froud. to the next, yeah, moves Wait, to the next level. Was, was Tom Cruise in Dark Crystal? No, no that you're thinking of, of Legend. Legend. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, I, it was, it, it made me feel like a kid. I got so enthused. So it was and, good. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just watch Can I watch that without having to watch the original? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's a yeah. prequel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there'll be little bits and pieces in there where people who have seen the original movie are like, oh, okay, I can see where it's going. I can see where it's going and all that sort of well, stuff. Well, no, I kind of have to see the original first. It's, it's like, worth it. It's, it's worth it. It's, you'll see that it's, it's dated in some of the technology. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like watching Jaws. It's such yeah. a good movie that obviously the, the shark feels dated, but yet it doesn't really because mm. everything else is so contemporary because it's, it's timeless storytelling. Yeah, yeah. And the Dark Crystal is so brilliant in so many ways and the designs are they're absolutely unique um brian froud who was kind of the main artist of the time i'm sure there are plenty of others yeah but now you've got a massive group of incredibly talented people who would do anything to work on a dark crystal and it's been in the Mm. works like talk for a long time yeah Yeah, in in the documentary the um you know the little baby in labyrinth Oh, Romy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Labyrinth That's, is another um, Brian Froud's son. And he is oh, yes. now, yeah, and he's now one of the That's head right. designers on um, Age of Resistance as well. And to be honest, I haven't seen Legend either. I just knew Tom Cruise was in a. Tim Curry as well. Tim yep. Curry is oh, the devil. Um, you know, this is going to seem weird, uh, but it's a quick, kind of relevant, funny story. Far away. So I'm at the front desk. And Emilio Estevez is coming down to check his messages that he's been getting. Because I, I get a lot of calls from Emilio. Emilio. Yeah, Emilio. <laughs> I'm leaving you a message. But I, I would get these calls from Emilio. And um, one of his buddies was filming something in the UK and would call it odd hours. So Emilio, after shooting uh, Breakfast Club, would come back and say, can you messages? Yep, you got a few. Um, and uh, this is... You know, I, I take the message from there and when the nose what it says, and I mm. hand it to him. I say, oh, okay, cool, thanks. And so this would go on for a while. And um, one day, 
he just asked me the question. He said, do you know who is leaving me these messages? He knew. He was just curious if I knew. I was like, no. He says, um, well, Tom has been telling you it's, it's him, right? And I was like, I have no idea. He says, it's Tom Cruise. I'm like, I think it was Taps that came up before <laughs> Breakfast Club. So I, I sort of knew Tom Cruise. Yeah. I was like, oh, what's he, what's he filming in the UK? And he says, I saw a movie about a devil or something. <laughs> That's like, oh, okay. Legend. Yeah. Oh, legend. Okay. Yeah. Which I didn't know until yeah. years later when I finally saw it. He was a baby then too. He was. He, yeah. was. he was pretty young. But so cut to. I'm, That's amazing. We just finished Star Trek, JJ Star Trek. And um, I'd finished Tron, and I'm having a meeting with JJ. I wanted to talk to him about some helmets. The helmets that we did for Tron were beautiful, the, the execution of the actual wearable prop costume. And I wanted to show JJ uh, some things about if we do another Star Trek, it'd be great to utilize this particular vendor, and I'm going to plug him, Ironhead. Jose mm -hmm. Fernandez, who I worked with, mm -hmm. in Black, he opened up Ironhead. Ironhead, Ironhead is incredible. So Ironhead built these helmets for us, and I wanted JJ to know this. So in that meeting, no surprise, I'm running long because I'm talking. And and JJ's <laughs> next meeting is coming up, and JJ's like, I got um, I got my next meeting I got to go to. We're just going to have sushi here. Do, do you want to stay? Um, I was like, oh, yeah, if you're okay. Says, uh, Tom Cruise is, is who I'm meeting. Is, are, you, are you okay with that? I was like, certainly. Um, I actually worked with him on Minority Report in a peripheral way. So absolutely. And I'd met him a few times on Minority Report. So anyhow, um, Tom Cruise comes in and we're having this conversation about helmets. Because I said, this helmet is the technique we wanted to use on um, Minority Report, but went a different route. And he's like, oh, let me try it out. So he tried them on. And Tom, if you know him, he's very gracious. I said, I got a quick question. Do you remember working on Legend? And you would call your buddy in Chicago, Emilio Estevez, and leave him a bunch of messages about stuff. He's looking at me with his eyes open like, this is weird. Yeah. He's like, yeah. I said, that was me. He's like, what? <laughs> I said, yeah. It's just, just a weird, small world. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, I was the guy taking your messages. And, <laughs> and here we are. I'm a huge success. You're working on a couple things. <laughs> That would have been that's that's a very cool kind of um, uh, rapport builder. I kind of feel that that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, like just like oh my god, like that's amazing. Well, that's I'm definitely going to say I worked at a hotel as well in New York City called it's a small hotel called the Plaza, and um, so many yeah. celebrities, movie stars would come in and out, and I'm just waiting to meet Anthony Hopkins again. It's kind of like, do you remember when you wanted to go to the Oak Room and you didn't have a tie? And because he was he was so gracious. He actually borrowed a front desk tie because I said, I'm, so, I'm sure you'll be allowed in without a tie. Yeah, yeah. And I said that. And he anything. really wanted to have a tie. Mm. And um, we just gave him one from the front desk. One of the guys, he just went. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. I just you, wanted, do you remember that? I know, <laughs> I know you don't have Twitter, but he has, he has the most amazing tweets. It's just videos of him like playing the piano. Well, him on Instagram as yeah. well. He does that. And, and then just turn around and go, you know, have a happy Wednesday, everybody. Really? And that's it. And everyone's oh. just like, oh, we love you. Yeah. He does that on, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Actually the now. same yeah. thing. But no, he's, really, really and cool. he talk about artists. I mean, he composes yeah. his own well, music. Symphony. He plays. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. But, he composed his own symphony and, um, uh, well, who's the really famous, com um, uh, Beethoven? 
Mozart. No, 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 no. Um, uh, what do you call them? Chopin. No, no, he's he not. Uh, Tchaikovsky. Andre Ryu. Okay. Oh, do you know Andre Ryu? He's a really I, famous. I definitely uh, yeah. yeah. Well, he played it for Anthony Hopkins. So he wrote the symphony when that was, was real. Yeah, because I saw that. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's he right. And you have Anthony's uh, reaction. Yeah, he wrote the symphony, right. and then he he he's ne he'd never heard it out loud because wow. he was too embarrassed to. He thought it was terrible, and they played it for him in for this big event, and it's just that, like yeah, he's a talent beyond words. Like that guy, yeah, he's Anthony right. Hopkins and stuff like that. But um, he's all right. Yeah, yeah, I feel like my Somewhat. next job. Yeah. And maybe that's what I'll do when I get back on my scooter. I'm going to go to the next hotel and just just try and try and no try and work at the front desk, and I'll meet. Yeah. I'll, I'll be taking the messages from Anthony Hopkins to Tom Cruise. Or something. Hell yeah! The most interesting. I mean, who who came in? Um, not Warren Buffett. Yeah, Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, I met him. I was actually not rich. Yeah, no, no. no. So, but very, but you know why he's a billionaire? He's very thrifty. He would mm. bring his own water. Um, he still lives in apparently in his own, his own house. house. He from didn't ages buy. Ago. He brought his own food. He wanted the mini bar clear because he brought his own food, and and it wasn't him being cheap. He's but he knows it's like it's highway robbery. Yeah, and yeah. and he, I thought he was actually really. I've I've never met um, a difficult celebrity. Actually, I've never actually. I take that back. There were definitely a few. Mm. Oh yeah. But um, but for the most part, the ones like Anthony Hopkins, lovely, lovely man, and I just look up to him so much in in every sense of the word. I mean, just like you said, amazing talent, amazing human being, someone who I know struggled with addiction and overcame yeah. that. So it's hard to overcome demons. Um, I was actually working there. This is right before I started drama school, and I was there for um, Catherine Zeta Jones's wedding to oh, Michael wow. Douglas. That's fun. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> I saw everybody. They all were I can imagine. coming that, in. And, that would have been cool. I was just starting there, and yeah. it was just so I could raise enough money to, you know, live and work. That's pretty in, awesome. In London, it's yeah. a fun, privileged thing that we do. Yeah, it really, really is, and it's you know, it's it still is a very hard job. I'm speaking from an actor point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, that is that is a tough gig. That. It is, but we power through and you we, do. but we get to meet amazing people and, you know, get to chat doing this to amazing people such as yourself. Um, just quickly, what are you, what are you working on at the moment? If you're allowed to talk about it? Um, we're still, well, I mean, you don't have to be specific or anything. Yeah. But, uh, working on entertainment. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there we go. On a film. Working yeah. on discovery right now. Um, Star Trek. Yep. yep. Star Trek discovery season mm -hmm. three. And uh, just wrapped Picard mm -hmm. season one, which you can imagine if you're a Star Trek fan, being in the reading a piece of paper with Patrick Stewart's name on it. Yes. Is exciting. Did you enough. get to meet? Yeah. Got to sing him happy birthday recently. Uh, Not me alone. That would by be the way, freakish. okay. So Patrick Stewart and I have the same birthday, July 13th. Nice. As happy do, thank you. And Harrison Ford, mm -hmm. which is why I'm a particular fan of both those actors. And they're genius, but. Mm. You know, is that funny when you're a little kid yeah. and you're like, which celebrity has your birthday? And it just so happens that they're both incredibly amazing and talented and they have been, you know, my number. Your, your birthday friends. Yeah. Yeah. Because but, of you. but I just love them so much. I'll see anything that Harrison Ford is in. I'll see anything that Patrick Stewart is in. Yeah. And absolutely. Tony, and Tony Hopkins, even though we don't have the same birthday, but. <laughs> and Meryl <laughs> Streep. And we don't have the same birthday either. Anyway. 
Anyway, sorry. I yeah, working on that. Um, yeah, Star Trek has become my staple. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's what I do. You, uh, it's who I am. Now that that's all wrapped, are you going to take a break or have you got more stuff well, that you're on the Discovery way? Discovery is going. We're, oh, okay. We're ramped up. Oh, it's season two now, isn't it? <clears throat> it's season three. Oh, three. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's cooking along. Yeah. Um, just wrapped up a project for a film that I cannot see, unfortunately. It's okay. We'll, there, we'll there, wait till after. <clears throat> I'm at that phase where there's more than ever just a lot of different things cooking. You know, the, yeah. the, the directing, writing thing is something that's always awesome. in the Absolutely. works. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm very excited about that. <laughs> same. Yeah. It, it's, it's a job of tenacity. Yeah. Um, and I, I will not say I'm a great writer nor a director because that's yet to be proven, but I'm passionate about trying to to exercise that craft. Do you know if you don't buy the lottery ticket? Yes. Mm-hmm. But trust me, that, that keeps me that keeps my delusion alive. Yep. So I will I will be um still pursuing that and uh, Michelle Manning and I are still in touch talking about things. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's it's he apologizes it's, about the camera. Yes, sorry. About yeah. That. <laughs> and you know, we've gone digital, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. But, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I, I, it's, it's classic and cliche what I'm saying now. It's like, I got a lot of irons and fire. I'm talking to people. Yeah, you actually do. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the difference. <laughs> there was Jimmy Smith actually went on. It was, it was one of those talk shows. Maybe it was Letterman. And they actually, the host actually said, I'm working on anything. And he's like, no, anybody want to hire me? And it was, I was just like, well, wow. Well, I just saw a he billboard actually, on the way home yesterday where he's huh? now the lead on some new who? CBS show. Jimmy Smith. Yeah, this was a few years oh, ago. Oh, okay, cool. Well, That's he finally why. got job. Yeah. yeah. Right. But that was so <laughs> funny. But he was just like, no, he goes, I've, I've got nothing. I've had no offers. I mean, I'm, he was so honest about it. Yeah. And that's when I remember thinking, this guy is famous and he's talented. Isn't that sobering? Yeah. What? Yeah, very sobering. It's mm-hmm. like, what the hell am I getting into here? Yeah. Well, you, know? you know, and it's funny because I'm going to read this to you. I saw this on Instagram. And, uh, and Hopkins quote. There we go. <laughs> no, it's, nice um, I'm not going to read it all, but it was like at age 23, Tina Fey was working at a YMCA, oh, yeah. blah, 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 blah. At 37, Ang Lee was a stay at home dad working odd jobs. And it goes on to like listing people, you know, Alan Rickman gave up his graphic design career to pursue acting at 42. And so it says, never tell yourself you're too old to make it. Never tell yourself you missed your chance. Never tell yourself that you aren't good enough. You can do it, whatever it is. And I love, I, I, lo- I loved reading it, mm-hmm. but what always, and I wrote back to my friend and she's one who posted it and I go, yes, but I go, but what if what you love isn't what you're meant to do? I go, and this is my fear. Oh, she, you're ending on a downer that I am passionate, <laughs> passionate. No, I, about. I want, I want somebody to <clears throat> disprove me in some way. I will. I do- think you would know by now. What? I think you would know by now if you didn't want to do this. No, I didn't want to do it. What if you, what you want to do, what you're passionate about isn't what you're meant to do. Like Steve well, Schlotty, I mean, the Dodger, he wasn't meant to be, you know, playing, but he meant, he was meant to be a bullpen catcher. No, but it, you know like I mean? he naturally evolved into that that's the thing and i so i think if you will naturally end up if you keep going in in the direction of your passion you'll and you'll end up where you were supposed to be if you you know i know you don't believe in fate and well no smarter people are like that but how many i mean yes we're okay i don't want to be a downer but how many people that you see that are homeless there's lots and, you know, I don't know if you've ever actually spoken to any, because I know I have. Mm-hmm. They're hanging out at the Sunset Strip. A lot of them are businesses that have failed and they were no actors. backups and stuff. Really? They there's, were actors. 
Oh God. Okay. And they got, or, or yeah, businesses that failed, you mm. know, wife that left them, but so many of them were, and you could see it in some of them. Like I saw this one guy and I was like, this man with no teeth, you know, is so handsome. It's like, he was definitely an actor or model. And I asked him and yeah, he came out to pursue. He just didn't know when to give up. Mm-hmm. And so at what point, you know, because I mean, cause I'm going to say it, it's like you, you found your niche um, because something happened and maybe that general hospital thing uh, had to happen for you to be like, okay, well, that's for me, that's just the end of it because prag- uh, my pragmatism won't allow me to be a starving artist. I, w- I still want to do something that I love um, and still be creative. And things happen that were actually quite, I'm not going to say easy, it's not the right word, but you happen to be at the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> On multiple occasions, mm-hmm. and even to the the, the <clears throat> point where, as we were talking about, you know, James Cameron and all these amazing, you know, people you're competition up against, and and you very wisely said to yourself, you're not gonna if you, you don't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket, mm-hmm. and um and look, and he wanted your brand, what you brought, which is different. Well, maybe right that's place, it. That's that's right the answer is being right yourself. Time. Right. And, but also putting in the hard work. And then, as I say, you make your own luck. I'll, yeah. I'm just saying that, like, how many, I'm just asking your opinion. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I, I'm locked down to, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a failure. It's not that. <clears throat> I'm just saying that my fear is always what if what you're passionate about and what you really want isn't what you're meant to do. And, but you can't give up. So what then? The, I, I've, I've thought of this a lot. Because I've been in presentations with or in the room with people showing their portfolio uh, and hearing from their idols <clears throat> the infamous words, if you just believe in yourself, you can, you can do whatever you want. And it always makes me cringe because the believing in yourself, that's a given. That's kind of like saying if you have acquired the skills to do what you do, then you're going to be able to do, start to do it. Um, if you don't believe in yourself, obviously nothing's going to happen. If you don't have the skills, nothing's going to happen. So yes, you have to acquire the skills and believe that you can use those skills. But the problem is, um, again, being genuine and honest, not just you with yourself. That takes a Mm -hmm. while, especially when you're young, to really understand the difference between being a fan of something and um, actually being good enough to actually participate in that something. So I think that the honesty part of when Someone asks you, a young person, a person who's a sponge, malleable, at, a, at an impasse in their lives, I really want to do this. Um, and you, it, it's difficult to tell somebody when you recognize, in your opinion, that they are not cut out to do it, to say to them, I don't think this is what you should be doing. That's so hard to deliver, but it's an, a very important and very responsible thing, especially if you're the parent. Mm-hmm. So. I have two things, maybe three or 12 to say about this. Um, The first one being that when critiquing somebody's work, you got to be so careful to not destroy them uh, uh, inadvertently. So it's all about context. So if, if my son brought home a piece of artwork from being in kindergarten and it's a farmhouse horizon line, a cow, son. And I'm looking at this and he says, daddy, daddy, you know, what do you think? <clears throat> Neville would say, as a professional educator, your perspective shit. 
to begin with. Um, and if you look at the composition, it's like you don't have an eye for it. Like, what the fuck is this sun doing? Right. This, uh, you actually can't even look at the sun because you can't really draw the sun. There's no smile on the sun. Um, and I don't know. It it looks to me like you're never going to be a visual artist. So that is what you would never say. But that is actually the truth in that the perspective is off. The colors are wretched. You're using sepia, that crayon, way too much. That, Those are all that bird looks like yeah. a McDonald's sign. Right. Yeah. Those are all actual true things. But in the context, it's like, this is brilliant. And you don't, I don't think you should blow smoke up your child's ass either because that's the wrong thing. It's, there's a difference between encouraging yeah. and, and a participation trophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so understanding the context, and that, that goes with portfolios as well. When I'm showing a portfolio, hey, what do you think of my artwork? You have to be able to assess that person's desire for information and the time you have to critique it. Because if they say to you, I want you to be totally honest, it's like, I've got five seconds because I'm stepping on the elevator. Mm -hmm. It's not very good. I I, want to tell you why. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the context is critical. Uh, And the experience to having critiqued enough stuff, Mm -hmm. I think is important. You know, I've, I've got, you know, very limited experience being a father. So you, I pay attention to how I respond to them. Um, but the, the other thing that I think is vital is that you, you guide somebody to realize when they should pull the plug or they should be diligent and, and uh, determined to stay with it. And acting was, I think for me, my favorite reference point for me of going, I need to do something about this because I'm not in control. So I feel like I'm on the harsh side of the fence when it comes to this. When people say, if you just believe in yourself, you can be anything you want to be. And then there's like more extreme versions of it, which yeah. I find are just um, not just upsetting to hear, but actually irresponsible to say to people. You know, I wanted to be the first African-American female jockey. If that was my goal, pretty hard to do as a 6'4". Good white, luck, buddy. White guy, you know? <laughs> but I mean, that's an extreme case of... You can do it. Your, your dream doesn't... <laughs> I think you match up with reality. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's one of those things where it's a longer conversation. It's just like when you meet somebody on the street, a friend of yours and say, Hey, how's it going? Fine. How are you doing? Good. You, neither of you answer the question. How are you doing? Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of thing of, um, what do you think of this? It's great. Keep going you. And, and it's because none of us really want to engage in the, the challenging conversation of, it looks to me like you've got good potential, but what, what is your goal? What, what, what have you, have you set aside money? You're an actor. You, do you know that you're probably going to be working on many jobs that don't even get close to being a performing artist? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with all the sacrifices for somebody? Are you okay feeling bad about yourself because it's such a visual business and you're overweight or you're not tall enough or whatever it is? Yeah. There's so many things why acting is such a, a great reference point for um, the the it's the most seductive. I think one of the most seductive careers because who doesn't want fame and fortune? I know, now lots of people don't, but you know it's it, it's great to have enough money in the bank to live the way you want to live, and it's great for people to recognize that you've done good work. So who wouldn't really want that? 
So that's why so many people, and how hard can acting be? Because when you see an actor do their job, and Anthony Hopkins, for example. Looks easy. Yeah. It's like, I know I can do that. He's yeah. pretty much just being himself. A lot of people think they can. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you try. Yeah. Perfect example. You saw that I was in Star Trek, J.J. Star Trek. I'm a, I was a trained, legitimately a trained actor at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And J.J. offers me this opportunity, and I have a line. He says, here's your line. It's going to be, Captain, I picked up another ship. I'm like, this is incredible. I get to be an actor again. And they start setting up the whole scene. I'm realizing this is an actual real shot. It's not like they've got, you know, 20 feet left in the camera. Mm. They've just moved big set pieces and people are waiting and there's costume people and makeup people. Oh, my goodness. And all I have to do is see the camera coming in out of my periphery, turn, look over the camera and say, Captain, I've picked up another ship. So it goes just like this. JJ goes, action. I see the camera coming in. I turn my head and I go, Captain, I've picked another ship. <laughs> Swear to God. That is what I said. And JJ said, that was great. Next time, can we use consonants, please? <laughs> oh, my God. That's what he said. That's a great story. And I, I realized I was trained for it. I was ready for it. I wanted it. And I sucked. And, you know, with a few extra takes, I got the line up. Well, that's also, I think, comes down to experience. You know how you said you learned how to do what you do through experience of being yeah. with these people. So you can go to college. You can do all that sort of stuff. but you still have to, like, you have yeah. to be in it. So if yes. you were in that movie from the very beginning to the very end, by the end, like, you're just so much more experienced. It's, it's true. A lot of, that's why, um, Mamet, David Mamet hates acting schools. He says, you learn on the job. Mm-hmm. That's how you learn to act and all that sort of stuff. But, um, it's true I, so many I, I agree with him and yet I disagree mm. at the same time because I learned so much in drama school. Yeah. Yeah. You well, know, you, you and, learn, a, and a lot of Brits and, and a lot of Brits stuff. have, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, in England, I mean, that is pretty much like, like, I don't know percentage, but most of them do go to drama school. Anthony Hopkins yeah. went mm. to drama school, right? Helen Mirren went to drama school. Mm. Sorry, Meryl Streep went to drama school. So mm. I, she, but you do learn more. But there are a lot of actors that didn't yeah. go to drama school who are no, no, who very, are, very well. Yeah, so. And they learn on the job. I'm just yeah. saying that that's why I agree and disagree. Yeah. What does Mamet know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What does he know? But, um, dude, on that note, we got to wrap this up. On the it's, note of being disparaging. <laughs> but Neville, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've had a massive, good two-hour conversation. Thank and you. there's Thank you so much more I'd love to talk to you about. We'll, we'll have to get you in an, a, another time. I, I would love like to that, get you yeah. in again because I Happy thought to. It's so this was incredible. intricate and awesome. And we'll try to. Like, you've got a busy schedule. Yeah, but uh, we all do. Neville, thanks very much, buddy. It's great seeing you again. You too. Right? Thank you very Thank much. You. Take care, everyone. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye.